detective. Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Healthcare Boy, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. That works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Barnwell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Bill Van Vagel. Bill, how are you tonight? I am doing super. Uh, This is that time of the year where, as a sports geek, self-admittedly, lifetime sports fan, I'm at my zenith because I got the NHL season getting towards playoffs. I got the NFL draft coming in the next two weeks. I've got the Masters is coming. The Major League Baseball season is about to begin. The NBA playoffs are about to ramp up. I got the NCAA March Madness just finished last night. Like, I am in head-popping, synapse-blowing sports heaven right now. But, of course, movies are going to be what we're talking about today. So we've got, I think, quite a few good ones. What do you think about it, Nathan? Yeah, I think so. This is going to be one of our uh, review episodes. And I, first, before we get into this, we have weekly reviews. And we also have, Bill, you saw a lot of movies. I saw a lot of movies. And we actually brought someone else in who'd seen some of the recent movies to talk about them. And we'll be bringing that guest on uh, a little bit later in the show. But we're going to continue with our spotlight uh, spotlight on other podcasts segment that we've been doing where we have uh, we've got a podcaster or a, a group of podcasters who are going to come on and share a review or a just a memory of their favorite science fiction fantasy or horror film. Last time we had Jay the Dead on talking about Sunshine. Check, you can check that episode out. That was a really good piece that he did. And so tonight we have Trey Whetstone. He's the guest who's coming on later and he's uh, also, the podcast, his podcast, Screaming Through the Ages, is the one that we want to highlight tonight. And it's actually a relatively new podcast. Uh, it's been running since, I think, around Halloween or October, Bill. Does that sound about right? Somewhere in and around that. It was yeah. before Christmas. But he's he's. I think he's maybe up to eight or nine episodes, perhaps. Yeah, he's he's yeah he's got a few, and somehow we we've both managed to be to be in an episode, two different episodes uh, over there. But Trey's approach is really cool. Uh, you know, we have that kind of laid back, uh, hit this thing, hit that thing, hit the other thing. And Trey's is really focused on the uh, history of horror, but through the perspective of going through, as the title suggests, screaming through the ages, going through different eras of horror, different years of horror, and uh, horror as it was happening in different locations and in different countries. And so there have been very cool segments that Trey's done. He did one, opened the, uh, the whole podcast up with one on Val Luton, which I thought was an awesome way to open a podcast. And he's very, uh, he's really good with the research. He's really good with the presentation. I think if you're someone who really just loves that, uh, the, the film buff side of it, the, 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 the sense of 
of history and facts and, and looking at those movies from all different angles, particularly as they relate to one another. He also brings in information about the box office and what was going on at the time. He's recently did a series on uh, remakes, comparing remakes to their the new versions. And I was on an episode where he talked about Nosferatu, the Werner Herzog version, and Nosferatu, the 1922 version. And then the same way uh, we, we talked about the Cat People, the 1982 Cat People, and the 1942 cat people. Bill, I believe you talked Vincent Price with... Uh, yeah, I was on recently, and depending upon when this goes out, it might be the one that's currently up in the queue. I did my top 10 of Vincent Price movies. He did his top 10 of Vincent Price movies. And for somebody who says popular as Vincent Price, we actually covered quite a few different ones over our two respective top 10s. You know, we kind of went through the history of who he is. And we talked about some of his non-horror or non-genre sci-fi type films. So it was a really good listen. Trey speaks much more eloquently and is well-researched than I am. So give him a good listen. I like to think that Nathan is one of the best guys that I have. But Trey is right up there. Trey is fantastic. So if you've never heard Screaming Through the Ages... Give it a chance because you guarantee you'll be writing notes. You'll be going through Criterion to see which of these movies have been released. And in the case of some of these European films, you'll be scrambling to try to find them. But they're a really well, it's a really well-researched podcast and I can't recommend it high enough. And particularly when he does those, the episodes where there's several movies that are mentioned, I almost never go an episode without ending up buying something (laughs) afterwards. In fact, as you guys were talking about, uh, Vincent Price. I went in and did a pre-order for the the Mad Magician, and they have a, a two set of the two Fives movies coming out soon. So I was like, okay, I need to I need to add these to the collection. But yes, and if you're a listener here at Phantom Galaxy, then you did hear Trey a few uh, months back when we talked about uh, the best movies of 2021. Uh, he joined yeah. us and he joined Victor when we did that episode. But tonight, what Trey's going to talk about right now is one of his favorite sci-fi franchises the mad max series so here's trey talking about mad max hey there phantom galaxy community this is trey whetstone i was talking to nathan about this and uh he had mentioned that they were doing these call-ins where some other podcasters were calling in and giving their favorite sci-fi movies or sci-fi memories and things like that um, so I wanted to call, so I wanted to send this over with mine, and I know by this time I've heard Jay of the Dead's review on Sunshine, and Jay had done that in his kind of very professional, very Jay of the Dead, highly produced kind of way. That's not necessarily going to be this. I'm going to do just a little story time here, and a little background on the series that I'm talking about. So go ahead and get by the campfire, snuggle up with your favorite can of guzzoline, and let's get started here. So the series that I want to talk about and has influenced me a lot is Mad Max. So there are four films as of now in the Mad Max franchise, and they've really played a huge part, especially early on. There were several sci-fi movies early on that had a big impact on me and me liking the sci-fi genre in general. And I would definitely say that, you know, The Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome absolutely had a major influence. I mean, when I was growing up, my dad would, uh, you know, anytime we get in trouble, for minor trouble, you know, if we were in major trouble, he was pretty mad. But if we did something we weren't supposed to, or we 
or if we didn't do something we were supposed to and weren't allowed to do something because of that, you know, he'd just say, bust the deal, face the wheel. So it's definitely been ingrained early on about Mad Max. So I wanted to kind of talk about this series that I really do love and is really a big creative force, I think. And it does a really good job of setting up these communities. So Let's start off with that first one, and if you haven't seen the first Mad Max, I would venture to say if you haven't seen one of the Mad Max films, it would be the first one from 79, I believe. That one is kind of a horse of a different color if we're talking about all of these films together. It's definitely the most kind of near dystopian future type thing. You know, it's before this giant war breaks out, it seems like, but we are to the point where police are in these high-speed vehicles chasing these gangs all over Australia. So, I think it's got a little tinge of that dystopia, but it's like right there on the cusp before anything kind of happens. But that is a dark movie. That's probably the one I've seen the least, and it was probably the one out of the original three that I had got to last. But that is a very dark movie. There's a lot of dark stuff that happens in that, and it truly lives up to the title to show how Max Rokotansky went mad. You can see why he would go mad in this world. I mean, it's very, very easy to see. So yeah, that's a very brutal one. You've got the the main villain here is probably the least flamboyant of any of the villains. You know, the least out there, crazy type character. It's just Toe Cutter, who's the leader of this like motorcycle gang. Kind of a regular dude when compared to the rest of the villains. But it's still a pretty solid film if you can get through some of the brutality of it. Um, And I haven't seen it in a long time, so maybe it's not as brutal as I remember, but I just remember a lot of death and a lot of um, bad things happening. And yeah, I'm going to leave that at that. But when we get to something like Mad Max 2, as it's known, as it was known originally in Australia, or the Road Warrior here, is something where we build up this, there's been a giant war, it's kind of ended civilization as we know it, the earth is barren, there's a financial collapse oil and resources had dried up. And that's what we're left with in Mad Max 2, or The Road Warrior, is just the civilization trying to fight over limited resources. So whoever's left kind of warring for resources. And in this movie, Max is joined by a whole cast of characters, from a gyrocopter pilot to a dog to a kind of feral child, almost. But the main plot of this is he ends up getting to an oil refinery and there's a group that want the oil from the oil refinery, big surprise, and it's kind of this how to get them out of here and escape the clutches of these villains. There are just so many iconic scenes and moments in this movie and it really is like this road chase. It's almost a western mixed with like a road movie. Because a major part of this film is this very large, drawn-out chase battle scene that goes on in the second half of the movie. And that's a major part of it. But what I love, and what this does here, and maybe has done better in even subsequent entries, is it does create this strange community, and it's something we're not familiar with. But you've got one community, and they're battling like a gang from another community. And it just sets up warring like factions and they're fighting over supplies and you kind of get the whole idea of what's going on. The Road Warrior is a fantastic movie. And I think this would be most people's favorite, not necessarily mine. But 
I do like the Road Warrior a lot. I remember seeing it when I was younger on TV, so it definitely left an impact. And then if we want to talk about Beyond Thunderdome, you know, which has Tina Turner, and I should say, if you're not familiar with Mad Max, Mel Gibson is Mad Max Rokotansky in these first three films anyway. And he's joined by Tina Turner, who plays Ant Entity. And this one, yes, we have the added, you know, let's make this PG-13 and throw some kids in there and make this more of a family-friendly movie, sure. But when you want to talk about world building and you want to talk about these apocalyptic communities that spring up, Beyond Thunderdome is probably the best in the series, thus far anyway. And Beyond Thunderdome sets up these two very distinct communities. You've got Barter Town, which is kind of this return to modern times. You know, they have electricity, they have a lot of different things. But in turn, Barter Town is reliant upon the refinery, which is ran by. Uh, Master and Blaster, or Master Blaster combined. And it's providing the resources to Bartertown through basically a supply of pig manure, is what it's run on. Bartertown's really cool, you know, they have the Thunderdome, which, you know, two two men enter, one man leave, it's just kind of this battling um, head-to-head competition. But George Miller's just kind of on full display here, with his creativity in the world. And that's really what I want to say about these movies, is a lot of the time, There's not a whole lot going on with the plot. The plot's fairly paint-by-numbers. The characters aren't necessarily great characters. But when we get into the creativity and the worlds that are built, that's the real star of the show. Yeah, I, I really like Thunderdome. It's maybe not as good as The Road Warrior, sure. But just the interesting community that it builds up and these different systems that are in place. And I love seeing that. It's something we're unfamiliar with, and it gives you the rules of the world and kind of lets you get immersed in this world. So, Beyond Thunderdome's a good one. That's another one I had seen on TV when I was a kid. And finally, the newest Mad Max, and there was a lot of time in between these. Mad Max Fury Road kind of sat in development hell. I think George Miller, who is the director of all these films, had started the idea in 87, and really, he just could not get it off the ground. And it took until 2015 for that film to be released. All those years later, and George Miller had done so many different things in between, including a lot of kids' stuff, but he proved, unlike another George that we know, that he still hasn't lost his touch, and he still has it. And Fury Road is a very important film for me. I remember seeing this thing in the theaters, and afterwards I was just like, I had talked to my girlfriend at the time immediately, and was like, hey, we've got to go see this. I think I saw this thing three times in the theater in 2015. I don't usually, not since like my earlier days when I was younger, have I really went and saw a movie multiple times in the theater. I just don't do it. And I think I saw this at least two, maybe three times. Because I was that enamored with it. And you want to talk about world building. That's what this movie is. Because essentially it's very similar to The Road Warrior and it is a very long chase. Yes, we have characters, and yes, we have other things happening, but you have these three communities are chasing after the wives of Imat and Joe, and who is this kind of overlord ruler who, you know, restricts resources and controls what these people get, at least the peasants anyway. And you've got this kind of inbred type society where he takes these women and uses them basically as just his birthing machines, which is 
just an awful way to live, right? And on top of that, you've got, you know, Max, who is played by Tom Hardy in this one, which I don't think... A lot of people, I think, were upset when they found out Mel Gibson was not going to be the lead in this one. I think Tom Hardy does an excellent job, and I don't think there's that much to the character of Max, really, that we need, you know, the same actor to portray Max. I'm fine with anyone portraying Mad Max, because Max is kind of like this blank slate, almost, and he's just kind of our eyes into the world. I'm digressing there, but yeah, he's used as like a blood bag in this, where he's attached to a car and feeding blood into one of the drivers. And the cool thing about this, I mean, again, George Miller here, whatever those things were um, that were up on like stilts walking, walking through as they were driving their semi through there, it's just crazy. The creativity is off the charts. And... It was pretty clear early on that Fury Road would be my favorite Mad Max movie. And really, one of my favorite movies overall, period. I mean, it is it gets a perfect score from me. It gets a 10 out of 10. And while Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome are up there, they just can't touch Fury Road for me. I just think Fury Road is so insane. The world building is so strong. It's just such a great, engrossing movie, and I love it. And yeah, so to wrap this up, Mad Max means a whole lot to me. And really, anytime you can create this new, interesting world and show me something I haven't seen, that's going to pique my interest. And I think that's, I think there's plenty of that throughout the series. So, thanks for taking the time to play this on your show, uh, Nathan and Bill. I love the show, and you guys just keep up the great work, and I will talk to you all later. Again, Trey, thank you so much for that. That's really cool. That is by far one of my favorite sci-fi series. And in fact, at some point, and I, I'd let Trey know this as well, we're going to have to cover those films in in-depth, I think, Bill, because I just got the 4K series, and it's just sitting there on my shelf waiting waiting for me to crack and it that's open. one that i have not honestly seen in a while and i still haven't seen the last one <gasps> fury road i haven't seen fury for road. sure we're gonna have to do it fury road is one of those cases where you would assume that a series like that in the movie coming so far after all the others that it would be you know a disappointment but it's one of the best of the whole series honestly well and i mean that's a series with if you guys are girls are old enough to remember when it came out, I mean, Tina Turner made a comeback with Beyond Thunderdome. That was a great one. And the actor that I've interviewed before, along with the other guys at Land of the Creeps, Vernon Wells was in part two. And the first one is just an absolute classic of the apocalyptic sci-fi survival genre. So yeah, I'm all in. So Trey, if you're listening, and I know you are, we want you back. Yes, and the Road Warrior was is one of my all time favorite movies. Period of of any genre. So, yeah. and yeah, that's the one that you mentioned that Wells was in. Um, yeah, it's been uh, a long time since I've seen Mad Max the original, and it's not quite even in the same genre exactly as the other films. It's a little no, more but of a it, 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 gritty it, it, it revenge kinda, picture, sort of. Yeah, revenge, but but it kind of sets it up. It does. It does. It's definitely in the same world but i mean george miller directed every one of those movies and each one is a diff is different in tone and style a little bit you know it's it's almost um, like one of those things where there's a thematic line that directors follow but they get a different director per story 
You well, know? except in this case where it was George Miller every single time. Yeah, um, well, that's, and it, that's, he that's almost, what's interesting. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he directs like, it as if he were a different director. Yeah, it's kind of like the, a guy that does an anthology book or novel yeah. and kind of takes a, a different twist on each one. And that's the beauty of these ones. But yeah, and I, I think Trey summed it up, uh, you know, very eloquently. And again, check his podcast out. It's Screaming Through the Ages. You can find it on most podcasts. Uh, you can find it most places where podcasts are found. You can also check out our show notes. We will have links to it there. And uh, we'll also add some links into the episodes that Bill and I uh, were both on. But okay, so what we'll do now is jump right into our movies. Uh, Bill's Bill has a few, and then uh, I've got a couple. We'll talk back and forth, and then uh, Trey and I had recorded some films that I don't think you've seen yet, Bill. So we didn't want to spoil anything there, and we recorded this a little earlier. So we will have that at the end of the episode where we come in and talk about some films. But I think we've got a lot of stuff on the on the menu today, and a lot of new stuff. Bill, do you want to start out with one of your movies? Sure, and just to let everybody kind of know. Everybody knows me as the horror guy. Yo, Bill's the horror guy. He loves slasher and all that kind of stuff. And I do. I mean, a butcher. Not, not, Bill the butcher. The butcher. I mean, there's a reason. But today, I kind of took more of a thematic approach in terms of I'm going to get a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and kind of watch them because sometimes I feel like I neglect my sci-fi fans. Sometimes I feel like I neglect people who just like something other than horror. So I'm going to lead off with one I watched the other night with my wife Jennifer. And that's 2022's Death on the Nile. Now, Death on the Nile, first of all, was a film in 78, I believe. And it was done, and I saw that a long time ago. It's based on an Agatha Christie novel. Based on the main character of Hercule Poirot, the Belgian sleuth that always seems to come in and solve crimes that happen to be around where he happens to be. He gets his little gray cells, you know, and he <laughs> solves his, his crimes. But the story is always the lead up is usually what's interesting because anybody can throw a character out there that solves crimes. I mean, Murder, She Wrote went on way too long in my opinion. <laughs> but, you know, a, a, a good story is really what makes the difference between these. Death on the Nile is a good story. So here's the one line brief synopsis of INDB. Snicker, as you will. While on vacation on the Nile, Hercule Poirot must investigate the murder of a young heiress. Doesn't that tell you everything you need to know? I mean, come on. Uh, It's classified as crime, drama, mystery. I thought it kind of fits the genres because we like murder and we like crime and we like mystery. But we like good acting. And that's a lot of what this film shows it's directed by sir kenneth Branagh. Well, he's not a sir is he is he a sir nathan it's a good question i don't know he sounds like he should be a sir I oh think. he should be if he isn't we're gonna anoint him sir then they would have anointed him after hamlet but who knows really <laughs> yeah that's um, true but now kenneth Branagh was indeed just sir kenneth Branagh. he is okay there you go i know more than i realize kenneth Branagh, if you were an oscar fan was just recently nominated for belfast Now, he directed and starred in this film. So, as a director, he's done Belfast, Murder on the Orient Express, which was the kind of the follow-up to this one. And he also did Thor, among many different films. He's he's got, I don't know, I'm going to say 30-some-odd films he's probably directed. Oh, he's directed. Yeah, he directed. In fact, they're coming out with a special edition of it shortly here. And some people hate it, and some people... I think it's pretty decent. Uh, the he did Mary Shelley's Frankenstein back in 
Oh yeah, um, that was yeah, that was just, a while back. Yeah. yeah, which regardless of what you think about it, was in a lot of ways a lot closer to the novel than any of the other film versions that have come out. Um, and it is actually Era is releasing a special edition of it in 4K and on Blu-ray next week. So yeah, and and it obviously stars Kenneth Branagh. Now, when I think of Kenneth Branagh, the actor, the first movie that I really remember him in was Dead Again. Yeah, that we need to cover that on the show at some point. Dead Again's a really a cool That's underrated a strong, movie. Late eighties, early nineties. Nineties, ninety one, I wanna 91? say. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Kind and of he, kind of a thriller, kind of like in a Liam Neeson type role. And I'm pretty certain that's was that no, maybe Henry V was he directed Dead Again. Oh, I didn't even realize so, he yeah, actually directed um, that. Yeah. And I thought it was maybe it was um uh, I think the first one that I remember seeing him in that I think he directed was Henry V, which is a great adaptation of, you know, Shakespeare. And the other film of of some note that you might have seen him in a smaller role, he was in Valkyrie. So uh, Kenneth Branagh, you know, you look at his oh, yeah. uh, IMDb, he's got like well over 100, I'm sure. I don't have he's, done a, he's done a ton of stuff. And but, uh, he's been... All over the place. Great, great actor, and uh, can can be overblown sometimes. But I think that you know, uh, as a director, I think I enjoy him most when he's directing himself a lot of times. Uh, and one of my favorite movies is the Hamlet that he did in '96. So he's got. The, I think he's really good at the adaptation. That he can adapt something and turn in a pretty good, you know, a pretty good final product. I mean, he's definitely got a little bit of the uppity in him. But oh he, yeah, yeah, and it comes out in some movies. But like Dead Again is is purposely almost like farcical and over the top. You know, it's very theatrical in a in a in a lot of ways. It's in black and white, so he has a lot of style to him. He definitely, I think, does aim for the classy kind of side of things. Uh, but here, you can tell he kind of cares about this character, the the Perot character, and cares about these Agatha Christie stories and trying to see them renovated a little bit. I, I want the guy that does his mustache for me. Cause that was freaking awesome. I loved his mustache in this, uh, but th this type of film, as you're going to find out is really built upon the story and the ensemble cast. There is an ensemble cast of nine or 10, at least strong characters led by Tom Bateman. Uh, you might know from cold pursuit or snatched, uh, there's Annette Benning, who whenever I think of Annette Benning, I think American Beauty, uh, Mars Attacks, that kind of thing. Lots of them. Russell Brand, uh, who you always think of from Forgetting Sarah Marshall or Get Him to the Get Him to the Greek. Yeah, I didn't even recognize him initially here. I was like no. Russell Brand, and I realized I've been watching him for about twenty minutes. Well, I, I said to Jen, my wife, I said, "Is he even in this film?" Like I knew that he was there. But it takes about an hour for him to really kick in. Yes, and, yes. And the other actor you might know, Michael Rouse, was in 1917 from a couple of years ago. But there's quite a few other actors that have just as equal amount of screen time that you probably just don't know their name. Army Hammer is here, and you, like, who, yeah, who they're Army trying Hammer. to downplay him being in the film because he's been in the news lately with, I don't know, leaving people weird text messages about wanting to eat their body parts, like for real. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> But I think the uh, the actor, other than Ernie Hammer, that really stole the show was Gail Godot. Gail yeah, for G sure. Yeah. Gail Godot, if you don't remember, she was in uh, Wonder Woman. She was in Red Notice from, uh, I don't know, three, four months ago. She is, her 
career arc is really, I think, peaking right now. It's, she's she, a movie star, even when she's in movies yeah. that are like, I mean, in a maybe the classic sense that like, so if you look at the old Death of the Nile and the old one being the 78 film, so Peter Ustinov played uh, uh, Perot in that film. And, but that cast was like Mia Farrow was in that movie. Uh, we were talking about Betty Davis. Betty Davis was in that movie. Olivia Hussey was in that movie. George Kennedy, your favorite, was in that movie. Uh, Angela Lansbury, David Niven, you know, Maggie Smith. These were, you know, a lot of the people in this old film were like movie stars. Like they had a presence. They had uh, a, like a sensibility about them. There's a lot less of that in the new film, uh, I think, in terms of those kinds of actors. But I think Gal Gadot is that kind of person, you know, persona. Like she I th- I, signs very I, brightly in the film. I think Brana did a good job in this one. We're going to get into it. Trust me, folks. We're going to get into it. He does a good job of letting the story kind of ride us in. As opposed to it being character-centric, I think this was more story-centric. Even more so than the last one, and I think that that Perot gets to be more front and center in the film. This is also the only movie I've ever seen. You know, that mustache is so different from, you know, he's always had a prominent mustache in all, you know, whether it's in the the original novels or if it's in the, um, you know, the, the old films. But in Murder in the Orient Express, it was right up front. It looked like it had its own life of its own. You know what I mean? Like someone just electrocuted his face or something. You know? and, and it's a very different kind of mustache than, say, Peter Ustinov would have. Right, right. This one looks like he's wearing a frozen squirrel, like right under his <laughs> nose. And it was so prominent in that film that it's almost in this movie that there's a there's a like a flashback or a uh, you know a prologue that is basically the origin story of the mustache. <laughs> Exactly. Who gives a who gives a mustache its own origin story? I guess when you're Perot, you need one. (laughs) Well, that that leads in perfectly to how the movie opens. So it opens on the war field, the battlefields of World War One in Belgium. Perot being a soldier, obviously for the Allies on the Belgians, and he helps his allies attack the Germans. The there are orders to go out at night to go attack the German stronghold and Poirot's like you can tell when the birds fly that we've got a small window there where we can overcome and take catch them by surprise and you know like the the sergeant is like oh but my orders say this and he's like no 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 I know so I don't want to give it all away but it kind of foreshadows his intuition for certain important decisions and then so that's 1917 Uh, so we're we're heading to now towards 1937. So Poirot is in Egypt and he meets Bateman at the great pyramid of Giza. He just happens to meet him there. Right. Of course, you know, you go, you know, X amount of miles across the world and you run into a buddy. Right. So they're <laughs> at the, the great pyramid. Uh, Bateman's there. He lets him know that, and and his buddy is Army Hammer, and Hammer and Godot are getting married. They're a wealthy couple. They're well to do, and they invite Poirot to the reception. So they go to the reception, and we get some of the background characters. There is Jacqueline, played by Emma McKay, and she follows Army and Godot around. She's an ex girlfriend that just kind of won't go away. She's obviously got some money and she travels the world seemingly kind of stalking 
hammer, but the the new wife does not obviously want her to be around who is Gail Godot. And so they go to the reception and, you know, there's a big party and everything's going on. And guess who shows up? Good old Miss McKay. Now, before I get into more of it, it's very stylishly shot. And I was impressed with the score. The score is quite atmospheric. And they start to lay down the suspects. You kind of get the motives. Certain personalities begin to emerge. Though one of the criticisms I would give this film is I thought the first hour went longer than it needed to be. I thought it took a little too long building the story. I get that you want to build the story and with a cast this large, you wanted to hear about why things eventually happened. But I thought they could have cut out 15, 20 minutes of it because it opens up with a scene in a nightclub uh, with jazz singers and things. And we didn't really need all that, to be honest with you. Well, and yeah, and in a, in a way, Nick, the, the rest of the story, like it's there to discover, but it, the pleasure of these sorts of movies is just sort of letting that, um, kind of wash over you, you know what I mean? And, and, and go along for the ride. And I think that you're right. It, it, it is a little bit long. It's also, it is, it does look great. Although I, you know what I kind of uh, disliked about this film versus the old 78 film too much CGI, like particularly for some of the like vistas and the shots like that. Like there were some beautiful shots, particularly the interior of the boat, but there's also a lot of like, it just looks very glossy and, uh, unrealistic, you know, and it kind of takes you out of the movie a little bit. Uh, and I did think it was too long. Like it, it takes a long time to really rev up and get going. Like I get the idea. Everybody's having a lot of fun in the film, but it seemed like it was almost too leisurely, just a little bit. Yeah. And the irony is that when I was watching with my wife, Jennifer, she's been there. She's gone along the Nile. She's been to the Great Pyramids. And she goes, as there, I'll get to where the actual Nile kicks into the story. But she goes, I don't remember them being that close to the water. <laughs> well, and I don't remember them looking that much, you know, that uh, that much like a like a painting, you know. No, pr- I, pristine. Films like this, you want to have that globe-trotting experience where you feel like they're shooting on location and things like that. And I never I never had that experience with this movie, although I think that a lot of the imagery is very, is beautiful to look at. And he always makes stately, beautiful films that have great scores and things like that. But I'm also wondering, and uh, Jen brought it up. She goes, this would have been shot kind of, you know, they may have started before the pandemic, but it might've got caught up in it. And I'm wondering if, you know, travel restrictions and things kind of, they had to kind of do it on the fly. Oh, I'm sure that some of that does play into it. I just wish that it in some of the cases, maybe they had either gone with less or, had done better visual effects. Yeah. But like, I mean, it would have been expensive even at the best of times to, you know, cordon off right beside all the ancient ruins and go buy them. So, I mean, there's logistic issues with this kind of film as it is. So, so what eventually happens is they get married. They go on a boat, river boat, like a grandiose river boat. And I did research on this river boat and it actually sailed the seas for many, many, many decades and had gone to almost ruin until another company picked it up in the early 2000s, renovated it. And so this was an actual boat that was out 
in the in the world sailing. Like it was a cruise ship of the 1940s, essentially. So McKay shows up uh, on the trip, comes onto the ship, and obviously Godot's not happy. Why is this ex-girlfriend showing up? Not only was she at the reception, now she's on our bloody boat. There's businessmen, there's entertainers, something's got to give. Well, it takes about an hour. Okay. It does. It takes a while. It takes a while. It takes an hour. But after that hour kicks in, that last hour and 20 minutes, I loved the last hour and 20 minutes. To me, it was a highly fashionable Columbo. <laughs> that's, that's really what it was to me because anybody who's read uh, Hercule Poirot with Agatha Christie, they're not a tough read and they're really quick. You can literally read one in a sitting. I mean, if you're on your game, you could read one in about an hour. But I, I always found Poirot better than Marple. I, I, I just liked them better. I will say, Gail Godot, her performance was awesome. I, I can understand why she didn't get an Oscar nod, because she was only in it for about an hour. But she was good, and she looked stunning. Like, I don't say that as a guy drooling. I just say that as someone admiring how someone else looked in their performance. She looked gorgeous. Well, and that's the movie star coming. And I, and I think I think that she she's good in the movie. I think the acting is fine. I think she comes off just a little bit stiff in her character, but that, that's a little bit of the character. And there's almost zero, she has no chemistry at all with Army Hammer, which is kind of a problem, you know, in yeah. the context of the story. Uh, and... And I know that the, the, he was problematic for a lot of different reasons for them making the film that were after he'd already been cast. I'm not a huge fan of his anyway, I think. I don't know. He, he never quite sells me on any of his characters in any of the films he's been in. Uh, he was one of the primary reasons that I otherwise really wanted to like the Lone Ranger film from a few years ago. And I you know, kind of came up flat on that as well. But uh, a lot of the side characters, true to uh, the, other, the other films that have been done about Poirot, are there's a lot of juice there. And I, what I liked here is they do tweak a couple of things. And so they allow those jazz singers to come in. Right. So Sophie Okonedo and Letitia Wright are really good. I think they're the, probably the standouts of that side cast and they bring a lot to the table. And I think they add a kind of flair to it that, uh, they're more lively than I think some of the other, and Annette Benning also. Uh, they're more lively than a lot of the other actors. I did enjoy seeing Jennifer Saunders and Dawn French again. You know the absolutely fabulous. Oh, ab fab! Yeah, yeah, it was fun to see them. Like when they got on, I was like, okay. And as you mentioned, like Russell Brand, uh, who who's actually kind of understated as opposed to his normal overstate. I'm not a fan of Brand usually, and I it took me a couple of minutes to kind of realize, oh, okay, this is. That's, that's Russell Brad. He's a little, someone gave him the, you know, sedated him a little before he. And the thing with Army Hammer, like I knew him from the social network and I was going through the movies. Yeah. I forgot he was, there was a movie he was in a few years ago, a horror movie called Wounds. Yes. Yeah. Very dark and uh, yes. weird. Yeah. Weird. And it didn't get a huge reception, but I quite liked it. It's a Hulu movie, if I remember. Yeah. It was definitely in that, yeah. that kind of, uh, esoteric horror film that's not what you would normally expect. It would think it was based off a short story. It has that same sort of vibe. Yeah, because it would have been like an 85-minute film or something. Like It wouldn't have yeah. been a killer. Anyways, and there are a, a whole slew of side characters. And it, it, all kinds of things come out. For example, I'm just going to list off what kind of stories came out. I'm not going to say who they're associated with. So there's Previous Loves Lost. 
There's undisclosed identities. There's unrequited love. There's business interests. There's lost fortunes. There's hidden loves. There's racial injustices. There's underhanded parents. There is love of a homosexual nature, which back in 1930s would not have been looked upon the same way it is now. There's this air of every different character had a motive. And so it's obviously up to Poirot to figure it out. And I thought the last half hour was bloody well awesome. I loved that end of it. But it does get dark about the last half hour. It gets dark for this kind of film. I'm not going to give you anything from the last hour. You got to watch it. I did think that I actually thought Annette Benning was underused. I didn't think they used her nearly enough that for an actress of her caliber, I understand it's a, you know, it's an ensemble cast and you each have your piece and there's nobody's bigger than the whole. I, I get all that, but I thought they could have used her a bit more. I gave this an eight out of 10. If you can kind of muddle through the first hour and get to that turning point, it's a really enjoyable, literal ride on the Nile. I don't know what you thought about that, Nathan. Yeah, I, I did enjoy it, and I had fun watching it. We meant to get to the theater to see this one. We didn't get a chance to, and so we did catch it because it's play. It's on a couple places. It's on Hulu. It's also on HBO Max right now. And I think a lot of what you said is, is accurate, that it looks great. Uh, the cast is fun. Uh, but this, by the same token, it does take a long time to get the ball rolling, and there's just a little bit lack of juice to the movie for me that by the time we got to the last third, I almost didn't quite care enough about all these characters and who exactly had done it. This was also a problem, I thought, with The Murder on the Orient Express. That it looks great. Uh, Brana is a is a great director. I think here, though, his the job that he's doing for most of the film, outside of anything dealing with Perot, is he's sort of just making it a very nice, fun, leisurely matinee afternoon uh, murder mystery, which I think is perfectly acceptable. It's just he never quite gets the the, the blood pumping, uh, although he, he brings a lot of gusto, particularly like you mentioned in the last third. I think that is when the movie picks up, but there's so much time uh, that it, it, it where it isn't in full gear, and when it's not in full gear, it just sort of coasts. Now, the old film depended, you know, it utilized the sets and it utilized the location photography and those actors more and kept more interest bubbling through the whole movie. This movie's kind of half asleep for a good chunk of it. But that being said, I did, I did enjoy it. I would recommend it mostly for uh, Brano's take on Perot, which is the best thing about it. And I think he does bring a sort of uh, bluster to it that that's a, even a little different than say some of the other actors like Albert, Albert Finney has played him before, as I mentioned um, uh, that in the Ustinov played him in the, in the previous version of this film. So for me, I liked this one uh, just about a little bit more than murder on the Orient express. I give it a 6.5. I'd recommend that you stream it and watch it uh, or rent it. It was a, it was a fun time, a fun little murder mystery and it does look great. The two best parts of the film, other than uh, how Gal Gadot looked and the way that uh, Brana acted, was two inanimate objects, Poirot's mustache and the boat. Yes, yes, yes. It, <laughs> the mustache the is a character of itself. And the, yeah, maybe even more so <laughs> than the boat. And 
I think that, yeah, it is definitely worth your time. And you, and if you're a fan of murder mysteries, you'll definitely want to see it. All right. I think we've talked that one to death. Nathan, why don't you bring one up to the plate? Okay, well, I will bring the newest Sony Pictures Marvel superhero film, Morbius, which has a, has had a long history of being delayed. It was supposed to come out, I want to say, last spring and didn't, and it's been sort of flip-flopping back and forth, and then finally uh, did release just this past weekend. And this is not a part of the MCU as we know it, because this belongs over kind of on the Sony side of things where they're still making films like Venom. And in fact, if you saw Venom or the sequel Venom, Let There Be Carnage, this movie feels much more like those films, I would say, than what's happening in the MCU. And uh, I'll give you the basic background on this. Morbius, we are now at the point where we are sort of picking characters that are, you know, we've gone through the first tier, we've gone mostly through the second tier, and we're on that cusp of the second tier into the third tier now. And Morbius was uh, introduced in the comic books as the living vampire. And uh, I may be mistaken on this, but I believe he showed up first in Spider-Man comic books, which makes sense. He's sort of in that same universe that sort of orbits Spider-Man. And it is, they're aiming for a little bit of a horror vibe to the movie, but I wouldn't really call it a, a horror film. Uh, it does star Jared Leto as Michael Morbius. He's a scientist and he has a rare blood disease. And that's about as far as we go, right? It's a rare blood disease. We can do it a little bit more. But we learn about his past. He's got a surrogate brother, if you will, uh, played by Matt Smith, who's Milo Morbius. And you get flashbacks from their, their childhood. In those flashbacks, which I think were not really all that well done, There's uh, you get this feeling that, you know, things between them were a little strained. And you kind of follow along with Michael. He's trying to find a cure because he and Milo both have the same uh, disease. So basically what happens is his attempt to find seek a cure for this. He's this doctor. He's a man of science. And he ends up finding a way. And the movie isn't exactly 100% clear on all of this. But he finds a way to splice his genes with a vampire bat's and a specific kind of vampire bat. But what this means is he didn't have to die in the process, or at least we don't think that he died in the process. We didn't see exactly what happens there. That sequence happens off screen, but we do know that now he has a taste for blood, the ability to fly. He has echolocation, and he's, for all intents and purposes, a vampire, and he becomes a vampire superhero because his his taste for uh blood ends up sort of coinciding with a desire to sort of fight crime. And so everyone that Morbius attacks for the most part are the bad guys, right? They're criminals or murderers. They're people out to do no good. And so he's harnessing this ability to punish uh, evildoers and, you know, get a free drink on the side. And the one thing that is true of the vampire mythology that plays into to Morbius' situation is that after he bites these people, they do turn into vampires. So we do see that happen. And when they die and they have, they've tasted Morbius' blood, they come back to life. Now, you get a story that is more or less exactly what you would expect. Again, like I mentioned, Matt Smith shows up here. He's more or less the villain. You have... Tyrese Gibson, uh, Al Madrigal, they're the FBI agents who are tracking him. And then you've got the love interest, right? All these pieces are just sort of like, here's the plug-and-play template. So uh, 
Adria Ariona plays Martine Bancroft, and I feel like none of these characters, they don't really, they they just exist to kind of pad the movie out. They don't really add much of interest or anything that you're really uh, intrigued to see. The movie mostly is built around special effects and Jared Leto. And depending on how I feel about Leto, you either you probably either like him or think he's just a bit much. I personally think most of the time he's a bit much. I do enjoy it when people find an interesting uh, role to cast him in or place him very specifically within a world the way he was placed within Blade Runner. But for the most part, um, I'm never I'm not quite always in sync with the characters that he plays. He always seems like he's sort of above the role a little bit. I think he's just fine here for the most part. But my biggest issue with this film is I could talk about the plot more, but it really just sets up all of the conflicts you've seen in previous movies. I mean, everything from Iron Man down and Venom, in fact, has sort of had that element where you're going to have this hero, you've got the origin story, he's reluctant, he finds a way to take something that has upset his life and turn it in and be proactive and turn it into a positive. And that's where this isn't really a horror movie. It's just another superhero movie. Uh, this isn't, we're not talking about some really violent, bloody film. This isn't even Blade levels that we're talking about here. And I just found the, the, the Morbius character, the Michael Morbius character, is really bland. He's not written that well. I think that any eccentricity that Leto tries to bring is also sort of hampered by the fact that there's a lot of CGI and special effects when he turns into the vampire Morbius that I wasn't really sold by. I think that that image works in the comic books. He has a different sort of, at that point when the comics came out, they were trying to sort of push against type and and give us a more feral vampire because most of what we were seeing was the Dracula in the beautiful, like elegant dinner, fine dining outfits. This is, uh, it was specifically casting away the ruffled shirts, but here we've seen this kind of thing. Uh, it's a dime a dozen these days. And that's the thing. Morbius isn't a terrible movie. Uh, if you watched Venom and Venom Let There Be Carnage, uh, there's a very similar vibe where you go there, there's special effects. And I think, it's aimed at a somewhat younger audience. If you've never seen a superhero movie before, you might have a lot of fun and think it's very original. Otherwise, you probably won't. You're going to probably go to see, to if, you, if you're into uh, Leto and you enjoy him, then you'll probably like the movie to a degree. I couldn't quite get on the wavelength of what he was doing because I just don't think he was given much to work with. I like Matt Smith a lot. Matt Smith isn't given much to work with. We have a new thing where Matt Smith shows up in the movies and five minutes later we assume... Uh, that he's the villain, which is weird because he started as Doctor Who, right? <laughs> but he seems to be, he's, he's kind of obviously the bad guy here. And I don't think he brings a lot to the table. I don't think anyone really does. that. The main difference here between the Venom films and this film is the Venom movies were just as generic, both of the films actually, but that relationship, particularly in the second film, between Tom Hardy and Tom Hardy, where he was playing himself, and I, he was playing the reporter and Eddie Brock, and he was playing the symbiote of uh, Venom, that interaction, that relationship that was built in those movies is weird and strange and kind of fun. And so it helps you get through the rest of the movie. I thought this movie just didn't have as much energy or juice. It wasn't as fun. It wasn't as, it doesn't have a, takes itself just a little too seriously. The jokes don't hit for me. And what Leto was doing doesn't hit for me. So for me, it was just your average kind of special effects movie that looked nice in places. But also, I got to be honest, I didn't really care for, as a, as a fan of comic book films, I didn't care for the way that a lot of, the, of, of Morbius's powers were visualized. I think that's where the movie really falls down. If you're going to make this kind of movie and stick with the boilerplate plot, 
let's actually juice up the visuals. These plots, Bill, you and I were talking earlier about full moon movies. I know that uh, Land of the Creeps has an upcoming episode about Charles Band. And Charles Band was ahead of his time, right? Because he was making these interconnected universes of the 90s for movies like a $500,000 movies. And he had them all connected. Doll Man would show up to the demonic toys. I mean, he had the FMCU, right? The full moon cinematic universe. Yeah. And and do we do we need to mention a movie that we previously reviewed on here, Doctor Mordred? Well, Doctor Mordred, which was supposed to be a Doctor Strange movie, but they couldn't get the license rights to that title. They needed Corman on their sides. What they needed, and but so they basically made a Doctor Strange movie called the Doctor Mordred. If you look at that though, what what I'm trying to say about a movie like Morbius is it has a lot of money behind it, but the quality of its script. And the quality of the way that the story is told is no stronger than some of Band's Full Moon movies. I actually, if you told me right now you get to watch Dr. Mordred or Morbius again, I would watch Dr. Mordred. I think that there's there's a little bit more ingenuity going into that. There's a little bit more juicy acting is not great, but Band is also working on a much smaller budget. What I'm saying is he would work with these base plot lines. Uh, Morbius is just a really expensive 1990s direct-to-video movie. That's and I feel that way about a lot of the movies that are coming down the superhero pike now. This I could watch this at home, and uh, there were movies made like this in the 90s. And the us kids who grew up in the video store knew know about them, and probably would more fondly go to those movies than this one. This is big, but it's not particularly interesting. It's not very. It, it's also been edited to pieces. It is, there's a point when there's almost a lack of coherence. I mentioned there are flashbacks. It's hard to figure out exactly what the science is that Morbius used to become a vampire because everything after that is told in traditional vampire lore. It's just, uh, it's amazing that I'm getting this uh, excited about a movie I just didn't have a lot of fun really watching. It isn't awful. I'm going to give it a five and say, if you're a major comic book fan, Save this for a rental. I don't. I wouldn't say you need to see it on the big screen. In fact, at a time when there are a lot of other good movies out on the big screen, particularly movies like The Batman and things like that, there are lots of films out there to, to, to go to the theater to see. I don't think you have to go see this one. No, and as everybody who knows me knows, I'm not a superhero guy. You know, like, that's not my thing. I will watch one occasionally if I'm at somebody's house or whatever. My wife wants to see it. But one of the ones in recent years that I did enjoy that we discussed off air was uh, Brightburn. And it almost kind of has that sense of it, but you said it's not quite the same kind of thing? What's that? No, no, it isn't. Not a Brightburn. No, Brightburn's a legitimate horror film that deals with the ideas of superheroes. Morbius is quite literally... I mean, it is a Marvel comic superhero. It's a superhero almost boilerplate. In fact, right now, Disney Plus, and I won't do a bit review here because we've only got a few episodes, uh, one episode has come out, has a new series called Moon Knight with Oscar Isaac, which is also based on that kind of darker, more horror-tinged world that Marvel, uh, the MCU, hasn't touched on very much. I like what's happening in Moon Knight much more. It's much more interesting. It's much more character-driven than what's happening here in Morbius. And I think everyone could kind of see it coming. The trailers weren't exciting. Uh, hearing it getting pushed back to push back, I wasn't excited necessarily that Leto was on board. He doesn't do a bad job. I think the movie is ultimately just kind of there. You know, I'm not going to sit here and slag it, but I do think that uh, we see a lot of money thrown at these things and they're they're flawed at the script level. So, so, so these directors and everybody get on board, but they already have their hands tied behind their back, in my opinion. 
Alrighty. So is that a lukewarm recommendation or is that an avoid? It's not an avoid because I feel like there are enough there are enough fans of these superhero movies out there, just like I didn't give the Venom movies an avoid because they're not quite for me. I get that. I've taken my kids to these films and they like them, but they only like them to an extent, you know. They don't um uh, my son, I think, enjoyed all three hours of the Batman more than this, you know. But they uh, they get a little bit of uh, in, in enjoyment out of them. And I think that people who who like these kinds of movies may. If you like the Venom films, you'll probably get something out of this. I, I sum it up. I heard uh, Gene Siskel years ago review Batman Forever. And he said, uh, and he gave it a mild recommendation. He said, you know, I was having an okay time while I was running, but I forgot I saw it. <laughs> By the time we got to this review, you know, it's like after I walked out, I just thought, well, I guess I just went to a movie. <laughs> and that's about this. You're not going to have an awful time. I wasn't squirming in my seat. Uh, but again, I, I would say that it doesn't quite get a pay. It doesn't get a recommendation from me. Uh, but I'm not going to tell you to 100% avoid it if you think it's the kind of thing you want to say. All right. Well, I mean, I'm the type of person that is of the idea that. Nobody's going to make up my decision. You know, I'm going to watch a movie for its merits and make its own. For you, this is like my own on decision. the wife on the couch with the wife kind of movie. That's you would, yeah. as you would call it. Yeah, sit on the couch, have a pop, have some popcorn, and just put your brain at the door and watch. I don't so, think it's going to bang on the door for a sequel to this one. Oh, okay. so this is a one-off. I I think so. Who knows? Who knows? Okay. Well, thanks for that, Nathan, and. I will, you can jump into this. I'll go back and dig into Charles Band and we'll just see who comes out at the end. Um, the next one I'm going to do, again, not horror, but those of you who know my sensibilities will know exactly why I did this film. And it took me a while to get to it. I did get to it. This is 2022's Jackass Forever. <laughs> now, this is my kind of humor. Crotch humor, uh, people being stupid, People having way too much chutzpah, not enough brains. You put it on, and it's one of those ones where you know if you're making breakfast, if you're putting away laundry, if you got to use the washroom, you can take it and leave it because there's no real continuity of a storyline. You don't have to write down a plot point. It's friggin' jackass. All right. I'm only gonna object to one thing you said there, which is I would recommend neither making nor eating breakfast. Or any meal, really, for that matter, around this film, uh, personally. But other, take it away. <laughs> That's a fair point, all right. But uh, so I like this kind of sense of humor. I like the impractical jokers who are at a, I wouldn't say a higher level, but a different level. These oh, they're at a pretty really higher level. They're they're above the waist level. I mean, that's fair to say. These guys are strictly from the waist down, mostly. And once in a while, they'll crack their head open or something. Yeah, ja Jackass is a film I have fond memories of. Because when the first one came out, I was doing my undergrad. I think I watched it hungover. And it just made me forget about my headache. Because just watching these guys... Uh, just made me laugh. There was one scene I remember where they put one of those Dr. Ho things on their scrotum. And I was just howling on the ground. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I remember there were staples involved and squirrels uh, and stuff. And, and, and I'm the first to admit, I haven't seen all the ones in between. I remember laughing about the uh, the bad grandpa. I remember laughing in that one. And so I, I actually got myself excited for this. I know for certain people, this is not their sense of humor. They're not going to like it. Uh, they're not even going to bother, you know, turning on the machine to watch it. Me? Absolutely. So it's got the 
same cast of characters. Jeff Tremaine has directed just about all of theirs from the movies and the TV show. And by the way, I didn't realize he also directed The Dirt. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 um, the Motley Crue. Yes, Motley Crue, thank you. So, yeah, so you've got your regular cast of characters. You've got Johnny Knoxville, you've got Stevie O, you've got Chris Pontius, you've got Dave England, you've got uh, Aaron. Yeah, Danger, Danger Aaron McGinley, McGahey. Yeah. Uh, you got Wee Man, Jason Acuna. You've got Preston Lacey. What I did like about this one is they introduced a few new characters. Like, you've still got Poopsie. Poopsie's still in it. Poopies, they've got yes. <laughs> Our Poopsie. What is his name? Poopies. Poopies. Yeah. Poopies. Sorry, Poopies. But you've got a couple new guys. Uh, Eric Manak is one of them. they got a female in it now, Rachel Wolfson. You've got, you really got the sense of this one was very reminiscent yeah, there's a lot of thinking of, oh, this was great 10 years ago. Oh, we've been doing this for 20 years. Uh, there's a lot of going back. And obviously, they had uh, BAM. They had some issues with BAM. Uh, and then they had the, the, the death. And it, it's a, it's almost you know, like it's not a tearjerker by any means. I mean, guys getting hit in the balls is never going to make it. Well, few, maybe it will. There's a few wistful moments is what you're aiming at. Yeah, the yeah, time is they're, passing. They're, yeah, time is passing. And to be right up front with this one, Johnny Knoxville does not take place or does not take part in very many of these stunts. He's more like the ringleader and he, he, yeah. he, he kind of, st- he's the practical joker. He's the one, he's the impresario who's kind of inflicting, which is not a, you know, that happened a lot in the, in the show too, but he's the guy who's inflicting most of the damage on these other guys. Yeah, he gets- he's staging things. Um, but then he kind of, you know, towards the end, it's sort of like, here, hold my beer. I'll show you how it's done. <laughs> He's kind of the Gene Rayburn yeah. of of the show. You he know, gets like his the old... big moment, though, and you're like, it's like, that's when he's like, here, watch this. Yeah. So, like, I'm not going to go into, like, there is no real plot. Oh, I'm no, not going to no. go into any plot of any kind. Other than there are guys that are now in their late 40s, early 50s, pretending that they're 18. And, and that's essentially doing these crazy stunts. With their physical bodies that 99.9% of the population wouldn't do, male or female, young or old. You ain't doing this stuff. So, but I did like the opening because the opening of the movie is an homage, an ode towards the Godzilla films, which all of us listeners and, and watchers, you know, we love the Godzilla films, except... Godzilla, we, we the we creature. Spoil this. We can't spoil this. Okay, we can't spoil this. No. Let's just say the creature is unique. It, yeah, and I think when the creature showed up, like looking at it, I was like, "Yep, that's about what I expected." And it, <laughs> it's done. You know, the way it's done, you're looking at first. I thought, okay, we're looking at special effects and things like that. But there's this pullback. The scene where the camera pulls back, and we see how this is being made. And I gotta admit, I didn't expect that. I thought no. that I did. I thought we were looking at more special effects than we actually were there, uh, the, and and it, that seems ridiculous. But it perfectly captures the whole vibe of Jackass, and they're doing it like it's yeah. this big multi-million-dollar budget movie. And I think what kind of works about this movie is they're so they're so uh, undeterred. You know, they're so uh, dogged about doing this and they have so much like adamancy and and passion for it that it's ridiculous. Like these are things that most people have no passion for. Right. It's that it's that artistic perspective of, okay, is this art? Well, I don't think so. But these guys seem to. 
Well, it's it's a form of performance art. It is just put it that way. And but you look at that opening scene, and they have there's so much like un like off kilter joy in what they're doing that you get the same sort of sensibility that when you pull back and you see the joy of Ray Harryhausen moving his little models around, what these guys are doing is 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 a profane version of that. And I'm not really comparing the two, except to say there's the same kind of like gee whiz energy to it that as you're watching it that it makes you uh, kind of feel like a kid, right? Like the whole thing is they are trying, you know, these stunts and the things that they do is a reminder that you're alive or a way to cheat death and, and be excited. And when you're younger, you, you you fly in the face of that. And that's what appeals about it, right? Is like these are young guys out there testing the barriers that they wouldn't dare do. Now these guys are old. I sleep on my foot the wrong way and it's either numb or I've got an ache in my back. And these guys are doing things I couldn't even fathom. No, I, I will say like there were for the opening, there were some decent. I wouldn't say effects, but some decent stunt work. It's very done. creative the way that they stage yeah. it. Yes, yeah. But once you get into it, it's just back to the old boys. Except yeah. you know they're they're fifty two instead of you know twenty two. But they're committed to doing this. They probably oh, should yes, be committed, yes. but they are also committed. <laughs> and and this is kind of where a little bit of the new blood kicks in. Now, I will say, these guys are, if anybody who's watched any of them, they are very free with their body. Yeah. In more ways point, than once. Yes. And, and then, so my, my son had seen like when a couple of the movies we've gone to, because it doesn't seem to differentiate anymore where they play R-rated trailers in front of PG-13 or PG movies anymore, because we saw this Jackass trailer a couple of times now. And my son is always saying, he saw it popped up Paramount Plus, Dad, can we watch Jackass forever? I'm like, no. I've shown them a few of the more like mild stunts from the TV show, like on YouTube and things like that. Yep. But I'm like, no, you you cannot watch this. And you're right. There's a lot of stuff involving Gentilia. They up the ante. I'd say about 70% of this movie, maybe more, maybe more, in, it deals with potential damage to reproductive organs. Would you say? Ra- Raul, if you're listening, there's lots of dong. Oh, yeah. This is, this is head dong into monsters. This is, this is anybody who's sheepish, anybody who's prudish, uh, you're going to go, wow. Well, even because if you're not, there's some stuff involving bees that I was not cool <laughs> with. Um, there's, there's things, and you're looking at something, and you'll just be like, oh, that's what I'm looking at. Of course that's what I'm looking at. I think I can't deny that some of it is very funny. I was going to say, I wrote down a few of the ones that, that I liked. Uh, there's an opening one where there's a crotch slap game. <laughs> there's body surfing in the desert with personal lubricant i sort of like that and one of the things i liked about this version is they finally got the money in the cameras where they can slow this down and we can yeah. watch these people crash in spectacular fashion and you're seeing a guy zach kind of slide over the thing and like all of he all of him is moving at one time and just crash so hard into the ground uh yeah, you know, one of my favorites was a little throwaway moment because they have some of them only last a couple seconds, right? Enough to get the gag and then they move on, which I appreciate. Yep. And it involves a guy on a stunt bike and he's riding towards this ramp and the ramp is going to go up and smash into something, but he never gets there <laughs> for a very specific reason. And I thought that was just a perfect, like, quick visual gag. It worked wonderfully. But a lot of it is not even... Is predicated off of the, are they really going to do this? And are they going to keep yeah. doing it? And it's that weird, bizarre carnival, watch the geek bite the head off the chicken that this show runs on. And they're just unapologetic about that. And you sort of have to be too. And at some point, you just have to say, yeah, I'm watching. 
And this is in its own way kind of perversely beautiful. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, like I, I will unapologetically say I enjoy watching it. Oh, me too. But, this, this movie worked yeah. harder, I think, than the other ones. Maybe because they're older and they really want to put it out there. But there's some stuff that I just was there. There's one scene. There's two scenes that I was cringing because they involved animals and unreliable animals that I don't think have that much control over. And one of those sequences, you actually hear, I don't know how much they cut of this, but you hear the guy say, okay, it's time for me to get in. The animal handler's like, okay, I need to step in. I got to get in there right now. I got to get in there right now. <laughs> and uh, But there's a bit in a cemetery where we man is staked out on the ground. Ooh. I was like very much uh, anxious about that sequence. And yeah. that's the point they put you, you, you get this feeling that, okay, if some of them were harmed irreparably, we might not be seeing this, you know, but, uh, there, it doesn't, it's a very wince inducing, but it's, you have a good time because these guys are out there, they're old friends, they're having a good time together. But you, you, you also get that sense of, yeah, they're being silly and that, but they really don't want each other. They do, and they don't want each other to get hurt. They really do love yeah, each other. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what I'm saying. If you didn't have that, if you had this yeah. just sort of being a cruel trick on unsuspecting people. Now, I do like that some of these some of these skits involve, uh, I guess, unsuspecting people. So they do a couple of kind of bad grandpa-style skits. Well, well yeah, there's, the, there's one scene involving someone having to relieve himself on a front lawn. That's pretty funny, though. That is very funny. You are, in the middle, you howling? In the middle of, like, it's either an estate sale or a yard sale or something going on. <laughs> and uh, that's ridiculous. That's kind of like, my the jackass scenes I remember the most from the show were always the scene where the guy, where, like, Noxu would pull up to a gas station to put gas in his car. And uh, other patrons would start to notice that the pop back of his trunk was popping up and that somebody was peering out. And then the trunk would flip up. And a completely nude man would jump out of the back and just go running down the street. So, like, I think that kind of thing. One of my favorite, I think one of my, the all-time favorite scene in this, though, and it was one that, because I was on my edge of my seat, is, you know, I think someone may have a legitimate heart attack here, is where he gets them all into a room, and he has the, he's got the animal handler there, and they got a rattlesnake or something, and he takes it out. And he, the whole shtick is that this, there's not he's not going to put them in danger, but they won't know that because they're going to be in the pitch black dark. So he has the guy bring the rattlesnake out and then say something like, oh, it got loose, and then the lights go out. And so he's got sound effects there. They've got the <laughs> night vision on. My wife was first like, who's that dancing? And is this supposed to be Jesus? Like, no, that is, that's supposed to be Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. The guy's over there just sort of dancing naked in the background. Well, there are, there are two scenes that I really enjoyed. And anybody who's seen these will know. One is the cup test. And and anybody who's seen any of the previous films knows the cup test. All I'll say is I'm sitting there watching. And I go, that's PK Subin. Holy sh yes. shmikes! Holy, I mean, I've known PK Subin for years and years and years, being a Montreal Canadiens fan. Let's just say I wouldn't want to get in his way. The, the, the last one that I had a personal connection with was I'll just it's called the Vomitron. The vomitron. That was the last the skit, I think. Yeah, right. That yeah. was the last skit, and I I can remember back when I was a drinker, and we'd be have our, you know, we'd get ourselves all feeling happy, and we'd get into that thing, and well, you're taking your chances. <laughs> I was, oh my god, the relatability. I also have to say there was a nice use of the song by the Misfits where Eagles Dare. I really that's true. That. that is very true. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, other than 
Johnny Knoxville not doing so many of the stunts, which I mean, I understand. He's I, I wouldn't call him a movie star, but that's his business. I mean, that's his living. Whereas these other guys probably Well he doesn't he's a nice at being the guy who's kind of egging these other guys on. Yeah. And I think he recognizes. Yeah, I mean Dane Danger Aaron is sort of jumps to talk he he earns the name there, right? He kind of jumps to the forefront of most of these stunts. It was almost like his show for a lot. I think it's dual because he puts himself in by far some of the most compromising situations of any of the people. Um, again, Wee Man puts himself in a scenario that I never would have uh, d- done at all. I, I like a, there's a scene where they bring in one of the guy's dads, who's been pre- previously like a convict and everything, and he's going to get in there, and he's deadly afraid of spiders. That scene's pretty funny. Um, well, there's, a, there's, a, there's a scene at a furniture store. Yeah, that's the bad grandpa sketch. And there's really, you know, here's the thing. Yes, and I think that this film is even a little bit more, uh, its structure is a little more ingenious than all of that. Like, there is some intelligence to how this film is put together. The skits last just the right amount of time. You, you're now at a point where they are editing and trying to have the same canny sort of, like, mix of tones that, that the Monty Python guys do. Now, I'm not really saying these are on the same level. What I'm saying is this isn't just a stack of clips of guys falling off a smack in their heads and they just hastily put it all together. There's a structure and a method to the madness. That's wh- and, and you can see them trying here. They're trying to entertain you. They're, they're, they're coming up with these weird off-the-wall but still creative things to do, and they're not afraid to just go for it. I mean, is it... Is it going to push some buttons? Yeah, it is. But then, you know, a lot of art does. Am I saying it's art? I don't know. I might be. It's. <laughs> I had a good time. What's your rating? I mean, on I mean, I, I mean, you could say, yeah, it's just a bunch of fart and dick jokes. Well, which it was, but at but the it's, same time, it's unapologetically only that. <laughs> <laughs> like they're not going for any social justice commentary on this. This is a man who's getting hit in the stomach. But there's a little, there seeing... is a little more because you're pushing the boundaries mm-hmm. here. It's I hate to say this, but watching Johnny Knoxville stand in front of a bull that is clearly going to knock him on his ass is you you're watching it with that same sort of a little bit, a little of the same wonder that I watched Jackie Chan do his martial arts stunts, or that I watched you know, Fred Astaire do his dance moves. I'm probably probably making people horrified that I'm making the comparison. But you're watching artists in their element, okay? You're watching and, guys that that do this sort of thing better than anybody else would. Maybe just by the sheer fact that they're the only ones that would do it. I saw an interview with Johnny Knoxville. Apparently there was enough stuff left on the editing floor that they've pieced together something called Jackass 4.5, which will be airing on Netflix. Well, that always seems to happen. They, I mean, that's what it is, right? You've got enough, you've got enough stuff out there that uh, uh, you, yeah. you never see all of it. So, so yeah, I gave this a seven and a half. It's I'm, just fun. Don't give your kids, don't, you know, if your kids are under the age of 15, you know, I wouldn't put them there. There is a lot of male frontal nudity. Yeah. Uh, there is a lot of gross out humor, but it's just, if you're an adult, it, cause it takes you back to you. There's nothing particularly harmful here, except for, no. unless, unless you plan to replicate some of these studs. Yeah. Whatever. Like it's, it's, it literally, if you've had two beers and you're buzzing a little, throw this in. It, it, it's just a laugh. It's an absolute I'm with laugh. you. I'll give it a 7.5, probably the highest rating I've ever given to a movie that has this much trauma inflicted upon the human penis. Yeah. To, to me, to me, well, yeah, you're you're just gonna walk around with a bag of peas over your crotch. Um, this to me was probably their best one since the first one. 
Yeah, yeah, I I probably think it's the best one that they've made, but um, <laughs> they've they've honed it to a to a, to a, you know it's aged. And, like a fine and, and the thing is, they're they're fifty year old men. They're so comfortable with each other, like they're showing each other their penises, like it's their fingers. They don't care. They just do what they do. <laughs> Yeah. So my next movie. <laughs> I was going to say, how do we transition? Uh, we just got to. This is my last one, actually. Uh, that, that we're going to discuss, Bill, uh, you and I, but um, or rather, the last film I have. Uh, this one is just came out on Netflix this past weekend. It's uh, Judd Apatow's new movie. It's called The Bubble, and it's a it's a satire film that's specifically based around making a film during the pandemic. You know, when we were reviewing. Uh, the um, Kenneth Branagh movie earlier, The Death on the Nile, we were talking about wondering, well, how much of this might have been filmed during the pandemic or, or after the pandemic when travel's, uh, you know, a, an issue. But this movie specifically takes place, like, within the pandemic. And it's it's echoing a very specific situation that while the pandemic was happening, one of the biggest movies that was being made at the time was Jurassic World Dominion, a film that's coming out this summer and brings back the cast from the Jurassic World films and also the cast from the Jurassic Park films. And that movie had already sort of been under production. And so from what I understand, that during... And, 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 and Tom Cruise had a film too uh, being produced during the, the pandemic that they were trying to make this film within essentially like a bubble, right? How do we bring these actors in? How do we keep everybody safe? But how do we keep this production going? Should we keep this production going? What's riding on it? Studios and uh, Hollywood and everyone in general are very, very concerned, right? That that we're even going to have movie theaters at that point in time. You know, uh, everything seems so uh, up in the air. And then you have, you you realize that, well, you know, we've got a ton of movies that still haven't come out yet. Is it imperative that if we don't strike now, will we lose money on this and we won't be able to finish this film? And so, guess what? So much money's been invested and money still talks that they end up making these movies. And The Bubble is a satire that basically is playing off of that situation. Very specifically, uh, what is it like to have to make a, a movie like Jurassic World, but this giant franchise, and is also basically this pulpy, big-budget, blockbuster, chumps and popcorn kind of movie. Uh, we're not here trying to make a film that's going to save the world, uh, and you're calling all these people back to make this film in the middle of a global pandemic. And uh, I think we're just at the right point where we can see a movie like this, and it isn't going to necessarily trigger you uh, or make you where you are thinking, you know what, I'd rather pass. There were several movies coming out, incidentally, I think right around the time of the pandemic, that dealt with people uh, sort of on lockdown and stuff like that. Some movies that were being made during the pandemic, a movie like Host, that doesn't require a lot of money, you know, uh, to be made. And, you know, I it took me a while to get my ta the taste to even want to try a movie like that. I think we're at a point where, for the most part, we can approach a movie like The Bubble and, 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 and remember 2020 and think, you know what, that is kind of the way that it was. Uh, the basic, I'll give you the basic setup. Here, we had, that was Jurassic Park Dominion that was being work in, worked on. And here we have a group of actors that have been in this series of movies that honestly look like the kind of things I would watch, even though they also look pretty, uh, pretty conventionally awful. Uh, it's a series called Cliff Beasts. 
<laughs> it's these, you know, uh, we've got the scientists and explorers and adventurers who go up a mountainside and in the first film, I guess, discover a whole race of flying dinosaur creatures that exist within these mountainsides, within these cliffs. And they've made now like six of these, right? So it's almost like a, the movie's never quite clear what it's satirizing. Is it satirizing like the Sharknado films? You know, eventually there's a Cliff Beast movie that takes place in space. Most of the actors return, but in one of the Cliff Beast movies, one of the actors decided, hey, she was going to go try to get an Oscar. That didn't work out, so she skipped one of them. And now they're on Cliff Beast Part 6. It's got a great cast. Karen Gillan is the one of the major characters. She's Carol. She's the one who didn't actually come back for the previous movie. She's coming into this one because, hey... Her her big drama moment didn't work out. It was kind of ham-fisted, and the critics recognized that. So the only way she can really uh, hope to salvage her career is to leave her uh, boyfriend who's in her home to England and film this movie and do it within this bubble. So she's going to have to quarantine first, and then she's going to have to be here with this, this group of people for three, four months, kind of time keeps spiraling out, and make this movie. Some of the others characters that are in the film dustin and lauren they are a married couple who at this point are separated as they come onto the set of the film and they're they're played by david duchovny and leslie mann who i think are have some of the best chemistry in the movie they are actors in the film they've got a kind of love hate thing going on here they're constantly bickering but the simple fact of them working together again on the set sort of ignites their uh intensity so it's fun to watch that back and forth you have um Howie, who the minute he's played by Goose Khan, the minute he gets there, he's crazy. And all he wants is to get as much uh, marijuana on set as he can because he's going stir crazy. Uh, you've got Pedro Pascal is there. Is it almost a he has a feel of like what people uh, thought of Robert Downey Jr. in the mid 90s. You know, great actor, but temperamental, a little bit odd. Maybe now he would be the Johnny Depp is maybe more his equivalent. <laughs> And his primary goal is to see if he can't sleep with the uh, receptionist who's there at the hotel. And uh, Kate McKinnon is the, she's sort of the studio head that uh, only shows up on big video screens to tell everyone, keep doing this. We really don't care if you get hurt or maimed or, you know, sick. And you're watching all of these really uh, strict policies put into place. Everyone has to wear masks at certain times, but not at other times. And you're watching them all trying to film this movie. And uh, the, the, the satirical elements that almost feel like you would expect from a spinal tap, they're there for the most part. But what you're watching is all of these people sort of go stir crazy and have to navigate a completely absurd situation, which is that all of this effort is being expended to make a movie called Cliff Beast that looks like your second rate sci-fi original which is really big special effects purposefully so don't look that great the dragons in the movie though bear a very strong resemblance to the dragon dinosaurs that were in the movie evolution that david duchovny was in and uh here when they start to fight the monsters in a weird unconventional way bill it has some uh more testicle humor for you uh, oh, boy. They, yeah, oh boy they get to have a debate about it well it was, will it make it any better if i have to shoot alien genitalia versus regular genitalia uh and, and, and the guys that, uh, you know, originally they're script writers, but they end up hanging from wires because they're the, they're the stand-ins for the monsters. They just hang from the ceiling while everyone else has arguments. And a lot of this is funny to a point, but this movie clocks in at two-plus hours, and it's entirely too long. There are very funny bits. You know, Fred Armisen is the director here. He's the guy who's supposed to be in charge of the movie, but he keeps 
running afoul of people like the Cubney who are actors who want to rewrite the script. You know, well, I'm the gatekeeper of the franchise and I have to protect it. And so, and he's the, uh, one of the funniest bits is that he's just a guy who made a movie on his camera at Sundance. And now he's directing this billion dollar tentpole film, right? Which is similar to the Jurassic world, you know, that, um, Colin Trevorrow, who made that movie, had only made a small, a couple of small independent films before that, and you you get a lot of that kind of uh, silliness. But at the end of the day, here's my problem with the movie: it's got a few funny notes, and it's got a few things it maybe wants to say about how we as people prioritize things, and then about how what is the real relationship that we do we have any real relationship to celebrity? You know, recent days we've seen things where you know your average person wants to feel that maybe there's a connect a connectivity or there's some relatability there. And on the flip side of that, I think there are a lot of people in Hollywood artists and others who think, Hey, what I'm doing here is really important. But again, the question becomes at the end of the day, you're not curing cancer. You're making cliff beast parts, part six or whatever. And that stuff's all fine. I think that the movie gets bogged down pretty quickly. It just isn't quite smart enough. It's not a funny enough satire. Um, don't look up was a better satire about something different, mind you, earlier in the year because it was a little more edgy. And this is Apatow just doesn't have a lot of edge to the comedy, and a lot of scenes just keep going and going. The biggest problem I had is that the Cliff Beast movie, while it does look terrible, looks much more like a movie I would watch than this. And there's a lots of sequences where they fully animate it and they fully have it going on. And there's a scene where DeCubney and all the rest are da- doing a TikTok dance with a dinosaur. I thought that stuff, I was like, I'd rather watch the actual Cliff Beast movie than the two hours of this film. And it lost me <laughs> sort of completely at that point. I chuckled here and there. It was mostly, though, for me, with this cast and this concept, it was kind of a big disappointment. Did make me reflect a little bit on that on the pandemic and what a weird time that it was, a time that we're not entirely out of. But I think you could have done this one a lot better. So that would be a. I, I always hate to use the word avoid, but it would be one to put to the back of the priority list. Yeah, I'm going to give this one a 4.5. It doesn't quite even, for me, it just didn't work. It was, I was watching a lot of talent. There were things I liked about it. But honest, honestly, it just disappointed me, and 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 I had a hard time. I think uh, being invested in it. You know, we've talked about some of these other films. In fact, I think this this slate of movies we're talking about, you know, uh, Jackass might be the one I liked the best. But this is unfortunate because I think there is an opportunity here to do something, but it was never scathing enough, and it was never pointed enough. And honestly. When you do satire, you have to be very observant. You have to really understand the way things work. It's the subtleties of things. That's why uh, a Christopher Guest is so funny. He understands these subtleties that most people don't pick up on. And here, even the Cliff Beast movie they're making, it doesn't feel enough like a real movie that that would be made at this budget level, right? It doesn't. He, the 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 Armisen where he's trying to be this uh, like, oh, I'm a Arthur and I can make this giant movie, but I don't know how to wrangle or deal with people. None of it has any nuance to it. It's all just very surface level what you would expect. We're not talking, there's no satire here at a level you can really appreciate. And if people were interested in seeing this, do you know where they can find it? It's right on Netflix. So I'd say stream it if you're interested. (laughs) Gotcha. At your own peril. Well, yeah, I don't think think anyone's going to hate it, but it just... There, it, there's just not a lot of substance. You're you're going to enjoy some of it, I think. You can't put all these people in a room and not get some level of enjoyment out of it. I just think that it goes on for entirely too long. And it goes on to a point where I think it kind of 
blows up on itself and it's no longer it's no longer a good movie it's no longer this kind of neat little thing it just sags and sags and again i'm like just give me the cliff beast movie okay ladies and gentlemen well you know me i'm somebody who likes to dive forwards and backwards and one morning i was on the weekend i was going through youtube and i messaged nathan because i knew that he was a fan of the lead actor in this and I found, honestly, a random movie, but it was one that had a studio backing to it, and I knew some of the actors. So I thought, okay, I'm going to check this one out. And this is 1976's The Killer Inside Me. Crime, drama, psychological uh, horror, perhaps you might want to put it as. And you're probably wondering, who are the actors in this? Because probably it's not going to ring a bell to you, the name The Killer Inside Me. The lead actor is Mr. Stacy Keach. Now, Stacy Keach, you would know for many things. For me, I always think of Up in Smoke. He pissed on my leg. <laughs> um, but A Mountain of the Cannibal God, Mike Hammer, All the Good People, or sorry, All the Kind Strangers. Fat City, uh, John Houston's Fat City, that's a good one. Yeah, and, and I mean, he's, up until the last couple of years, I think he was in Blue Bloods. Like, the guy's a really good actor. Now, he's been in some cheese. There's no doubt about it. But back in 1976, he was kind of in his jam. Yeah. And yeah. kind of at his top of his game. Uh, the other main actor in this is Susan Tyrell. Now, when I see Susan Tyrell, I think immediately, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. Where she, <laughs> where she just goes off the rail. She, If you've never seen Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, it was on the video nasty list. It's not a bad movie. She is the epitome of, God, she's crazy. Bat crap crazy is what you're Bat crap crazy. And got some mommy issues. So Susan Tyrell's could. She's a mommy with issues, yeah. Uh, or a mommy with issues, I guess, yeah. Uh, Tisha Starling, who was in a movie I saw a while back with uh, Clint Eastwood, Coogan's Bluff. Oh, yeah, good movie. I've never seen Coogan's Bluff. It's kind of a psychedelic late 60s kind of counterculture thing. Uh, a couple other actors you'd know. Don Stroud, uh, a pretty prominent actor in terms of his proficiency and amount of films that he does. But every once in a while, he gets a good one. Like, he was in the Buddy Holly story. Uh, he was in Death Weekend. Uh, he played a priest in the Amityville Horror. When you look at Don Stroud, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen him in a bunch. And the venerable John Carradine is in this film. <laughs> so... What is it about? Haunted by visions from his abusive childhood, Montana Deputy Sheriff Lou Ford gradually exhibits the signs of a homicidal schizophrenic. Well, they actually give a lot of that away in the introduction, but you kind of know where that's going. So what happens is Keach is a deputy police officer in a small town in Montana as Lou Ford. The town is called Central City. It's a small mining town. It's got small city problems. There's trouble with the local miners and the union and trying to extract more money from their employer. There's local politicians trying to basically get all the votes in the upcoming election. You got bar fights. You know, you got some arrests. It's small town USA, Midwest America. And you've got this deputy sheriff who might have a little bit of um, illusions of grandeur 
doing his job around town. Everybody seems to like the guy. He's a pretty straight, narrow, law and order kind of guy. But he's got another side to him. The first half an hour to 45 minutes is almost a bit of a melodrama-ish. You know, it's almost a setup for a 1970s crime TV show. There's lots of first-person internal thoughts. He's, you're always kind of getting at his thought process. You know, there's an, an inner dialogue that comes out from Keach and his parents. He has flashbacks with his parents. There's an internal obsession with his parents. And he witnesses certain things with his parents that form the person that he is. It's a slow-build film. At the beginning, you're not quite sure where the story is going. Or you're wondering, is this just a slice of life for a small town sheriff? You know, is this, you know, you know, it's not going to be in the heat of the night, but you're hoping it's more than, uh, you know, a Gomer pile. You're hoping for somewhere in between. But there is a dark side to Keach that slowly comes out. Keach has a high school teacher in town, or sorry, not high school, she's elementary. I think she teaches 10 year olds that he's kind of fancies. And he's been going out with her for a few years and she's trying to pin him down to get married and he isn't quite ready yet, but they've been going out for five years and she's just about at the end of her rope with it. Now, there's also a prostitute in town played by Susan Tyrell, who he's been told to boot out of town and it turns out that he has a bit of a romp in the hay with her. And then we get into some backstabbing. We get into some uh, paying off of people. And there's a lot of shenanigans among a love triangle between the three of them. And let's just say things go awry when Stacy Keats shows up at her house one night after getting pressure to kick her out of town. And as the result of the actions between Tyrell and Keach, other dominoes start to fall. I know I'm being a bit vague, but if I give you this now, it takes away the last 40 minutes of the film. It's dark. It's gritty. Stacy Keach actually does a fairly decent job in his role as small town deputy sheriff. It do, you know, there are certain things to it that there isn't there. There isn't a lot of action for the first 45 minutes or so, other than leading up the story. You're sitting there wondering what is going on with his head, but as it plays out, his sanity starts to creep in, or his lack of sanity starts to creep in. I think it comes up with a fairly uh, satisfying ending, but he definitely has mommy-daddy issues. There's a fun cameo by John Carradine as an interested home buyer slash doctor in town because at a certain point Keach agrees to marry the school teacher and the town is kind of on to him to what actions he had that he's trying to cover up given his role they're trying to get the inner goods on him so they send Carradine in there to try to go on a fishing expedition and it doesn't go so well no it doesn't go the way they planned <laughs> no so essentially if you're a fan of, say, The Shining, and I'm not putting this at that level. This is not at that level. But it kind of takes that tangent of you start as a straight, narrow guy, and then you're, the story takes it down a path where the mental illness 
plays a major factor. Is it a great film? No. But is it better than other films of this ilk? Yes. It's based on a novel by Jim Thompson. And if The Killer Inside Me rings a bell, it was remade in 2010 with Casey Affleck and Kate Hudson, among others. I gave this a six and a half out of ten. I, you had brought this up the other night, Bill. You'd seen it, and you said, hey, you should check this movie out. And you mentioned Stacey Keach's name, and I was all in from Stacey Keach. And the title seemed familiar to me, but I couldn't quite put a handle on why. You're absolutely right. It is based off of the the novel by Jim Thompson. And actually, this movie was uh, attempted to be made a couple of times ever since the 50s. In fact, the probably the most notable time was that Fox in the mid-50s picked it up and were going to option it for Marilyn Monroe as a, a starring vehicle for her. She was going to star as Joyce Lakeland. Marlon Brando was supposed to be Lou Ford. Elizabeth Taylor was going to be Amy Stanton. And then when, after Monroe died in 1962, the kind of project, it went on the shelf. And then they did this one in 76, which is directed by Burt Kennedy. And as you pointed out, you know, Keach is now Lou Ford and Susan Terrell was Joyce. Uh, later in the 80s, they are going to do it with Tom Cruise, Brooke Shields, Demi Moore, uh, Tarantino had picked it up at one point, and eventually it got made in 2010 by Michael Winterbottom, and that watching this film, I realized, oh, this is the same exact story as that 2010 film. The 2010 film is a different beast a little bit. It tells the same story, but it uh, it goes for a little bit more of the shocking violence. The violence towards women in that movie sort of uh, drew a lot of raised eyebrows in the film. Uh, and I, I can understand why it does go a little bit far. It, it distances you from the characters more. It feels a little cold. It feels a little impersonal. And you're just sort of watching the violence take place. I didn't really care for it that much. Uh, this movie is a kind of right down the middle. I think you're right in the 6.5 rating. I like Keech a lot. He's an actor that I've always enjoyed. Uh, you're right. He can do uh, campy trash. And then he can do movies where he gives a solid performance. And I think he did hit his heyday. There, as you pointed out, kind of in the 70s around this era when he was playing these characters who had a nuance to him. He is getting this kind of role that maybe back in the day would have gone to like a Brando or somebody. And he's going to play it very differently, obviously, than Brando did. And I like this cast here a lot. Ed Carradine, Royal Dano was the father. I always think of Royal Oh, yeah, Dano. Royal Dano. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, who has that almost like Walter Brennan sort of feel to him, you know. Uh, I always enjoyed him later on when he shows up in movies like House 2 and uh, Killer Clowns and Ghoulies and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and uh, Keenan Wynn. Yes, yeah, I was going to mention him as well. And so the the cast is good. The film is d- a decent movie. It almost has the feel. It's not as dark. I think it, the, the subject matter is dark. And as you pointed out, kind of a uh, it does have elements that would appear in The Shining. Uh, but it, what you're talking about is like you mentioned the deterioration of a mind. I do think that Keach and the film itself do manage here to give you the sense that he uh, that he is a sort of on-the-level guy, at least at the beginning, or is at least uh, presenting that facade to himself and the townspeople. Uh, whereas Stephen King has famously always said that in The Shining, and I don't disagree with him here, even though I disagree with his ultimate assessment of the film, that it's not good, is that you can tell right from the beginning that Jack Torrance is crazy. That wasn't the case in his novel, but Jack Nicholson plays him like a like there's something festering uh you know there's a few of the few of the threads on the rug are loose and they're starting to become unraveled you know and i think that they do a job here where you get the it does become a little surprising each new uh digression into this darker uh like spree 
that that he that he goes on, I think uh, they do a convincing job of that. It is very much a seventies movie with everything that implies. I think it's, but I think it's shot relatively well. But again, I think the thing is that it, it ultimately gives you a feeling of a kind of middle of the road. I enjoyed the performances, I enjoyed Keach, and I enjoyed uh, the experience of watching it. I just think that it's uh, at the end of the day, it's a decent adaptation. Of a much, of probably a much better novel. I haven't actually read the novel, but you you can see that there's a there's a sort of a surface level take on it. Yeah, I think it's one of those films where the individual performances are pretty good. I think it. I didn't. I don't know the source material, and I'd love to read the novel because I think where it fails a little bit is kind of the coming together of the story. I agree. I, I think Susan Tyrell. She always, as long as she's on her game. She gives a bang-up performance. And I really like Don Stroud in this. Yeah. Don Stroud comes across as he's that buddy that really wants to get better. He's got a little bit of a, I mean, he's on the, I wouldn't say slow. He's on the dimmer end of things, but he wants to do well for himself. And it just isn't quite working for him. And and Stacey Keach takes advantage of that situation. And the story devolves as it does. Yeah, and I and Susan Tyrell. Susan Tyrell has those great crazy eyes. She does. She does, and like, she's really good here. I think noir, which is what this ultimately is, right? I would say it's, it's a film noir. It's a film noir, but it's you know it's a setting that's a little bit different. And noir movies are probably one of my favorite genres. Uh, after you know, we talk about science fiction, fantasy, all that. They're, it's right up there. You know, uh, when they're done really well, and I think this one is done medium well. <laughs> Yeah, relatively well, but not great. I wanted more of the style. I think the style and the intensity are what's lacking here. Um, ultimately, yeah. like it, 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 the story has a remove where you have to be removed from the characters a little bit. You're looking down at them from an almost like a godlike angle a little bit, you know. And I it, think that it lacks. It, 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 I was going to say it lacks a bit of surprise towards the end. You know what's coming. Yeah, and you're not invested you're, enough in these people as people. Like you're watching actors act, but that's the thing with uh, with a Nightmare Alley or something like that. Like these movies depend on you sort of being with these characters. And uh, any good noir, I think you've got to be down there in the dirt. And this movie doesn't quite go down into the dirt. <laughs> It does. No. Now, what happens I mean, is dark. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying I don't feel, I feel like I'm always watching them from a distance. Now, I'm curious if there's anybody out there that's read the book I, or, yeah. you know, would like to compare it to the 2010 film. I can compare it. I think the 2010 film tries to be much more, uh, it, it delves into the darkness more, but it actually pushes you further away. I actually prefer this film to that film. I don't know the comparison to the book though. You know, I know that they end a little differently uh, from one another. And that one does that one ventures almost closer to a horror film than this one obviously does. Yeah. So yeah, this, I wouldn't put it at horror. No, 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 no. Put it at, no, no, no. But you could consider it horror adjacent if you look at it in the right light. I mean, almost everything's horror adjacent, but yes, yeah. Oh, true. I enough. agree. Okay. I know some of those funny. It's like you're, most things are only hop, skip, and even comedy sometimes is a hop, skip, and jump from. There are, there are moments in the bubble where it could have easily gone further, and there there's moments of, a couple moments of uh, unexpected gore, and I thought, hey, you keep turning this plot, and you have a horror film. But uh, no, I think there's, you're right on. This one is, this is that crime thriller where you're dealing with 
with uh, psychological uh, uh, psychological unraveling, and that is ripe territory for a horror film, and it skirts the line, I think. If, this is one of those, if you ratcheted it down half a percent, it could be a really strong made-for-TV movie. Yeah, you'd have, yeah, yeah. And I think that's the issue. Is I, to, I say TV movie because the direction and everything else feels a little pedestrian. It doesn't, it's not very, I like, to me, one of the things that goes hand-in-hand with Lenore is um, style, uh, style, like a heavy style. Not style over substance, but a heavy style that the actors and everyone else and the writers all have to adapt to and bring their up. You know, there's a feverish quality to a noir story. And this movie doesn't quite nail that feverish quality. No, but if you're listening and, you know, this might be your jam. You like film noir, you like yeah. Stacey Keach, you like 70s crime. Look it up on YouTube. Oh, to recommend for sure. I, I think it's yeah. worth seeing. And I think that if you've never come across this story before, uh, this is a good version to... Alrighty. So I think we've given ourselves a pretty good uh, display of films for this week. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I, you know, the... Feel bad, Bill. The movies I reviewed with uh, with Trey were all better movies than the ones. Well, for the most part, I, you know, out of the out of the bunch that we watch, I think we may both be in agreement that the height is uh, Jackass, or maybe for you, Death yeah. on the Nile. But I mean, I can't believe. But yes, I'm going to say Jackass well, might be the cream. Well, of the you know, it's it's high art versus penis humor, and they both have their pluses. They they do. I. I I'm not saying I want to look at crushed penises more than Gal Gadot, but I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway, <laughs> I think that's it. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I can't wait to do uh, do the next one. And then anyone who's listening to this, our next episode will be the return of VOD Roulette with do your drum roll, your your Neil Pert drum solo. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, we're gonna have the Horror Chronicles guys back, Gerald and Ryan, and they're gonna come back. And we had a fun time doing that episode. And we, you know, we we got some weird movies. I think we always do when we do these VOD roulettes. We never we never walk out of a VOD roulette bill where we don't have one movie that's just a little off the wall. I think. And we had I think couple. these are all off the wall. We, uh, yeah, I think you and I like. We're 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 the we're the oddballs this time. Like we're the ones that went went out there, uh, and everyone had to watch them. So uh, stay tuned for that. If you want to uh, hit us up on Facebook, we have a a, a group page that's doing great. And we're uh, I think we're somewhere in the range of 550 members so far. Yeah, something like that. Uh, it's it's great. We're gonna keep posting over there and kind of try to build the community there and and get some. Uh, some more interactivity going. I've been kind of busy as of late, but we'll be getting back into that. There's an episode up now of the illustrated fan that, uh, where Dave, myself and Christian connect talk about Disney films. So, uh, our favorite Disney movies, particularly Disney animated movies. We don't, uh, we kind of push Pixar out of it just because there's so many deserves its own episode. And Nathan, I haven't heard the episode yet. Does the movie, the Jungle Book, the original. Film. It does indeed. Someone does have the Jungle Book on the list. We talk about a lot of movies. I think I think between the three of us, we've got them covered. Uh, it's interesting because Kristen is much uh, younger than Dave and myself, and so you can definitely tell that like the movies he grew up with are movies that were like playing when I was in college, and Dave had kids in grade school. So um, it's uh, a <laughs> and, and this it is great, a great fresh revise. 
great yes. set of eyes, a, a new perspective. Yeah. You know, like, like something that we, you know, may have overlooked because, you know, life gets in the way in our mid twenties. Yep. That would yep. have been his childhood loving films. So. For sure. So check us out, head over to, yeah. uh, head us up on Apple podcast, leave us a review. Uh, we're trying to build that too. I know the more reviews we have, the more the podcast gets out and is seen by others. And yeah, uh, that's the Phantom Galaxy. Bill, have a great night. Take care. Well, well, I was going to say, before we leave off, I just wanted to, I didn't want to quite tease what we'll be having coming up, but we got some good stuff in the hopper. We do. We have a lot of stuff. We, we, we do. We've got some, we've got a lot of stuff already recorded. We got some great stuff coming up. We're going to have a lot of great guests. Uh, we're going to start doing some interviews and things. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm really excited about yeah. uh, where we're, where we're headed. So. Yep. And anybody out there that's a creative content creator, you know, hit us up. We love to promote uh, indie films. We love to talk about whatever project you got going. So give us a shout. And I had a great time this time, Nathan. Uh, you can take us out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy. For this segment of our review episode, I'm going to bring in a special guest to the podcast who's who's actually been on here before, was here for our best movies of the year episode for 2021. And uh, this is Trey Whetstone from Screaming Through the Ages podcast. Trey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Nathan. Thanks for having me back on Phantom Galaxy. It was a lot of fun last time, so I'm glad to talk some movies with you. Yeah, yeah, you're. I think you're quickly becoming one of our uh, stable of stables. Maybe not the <laughs> you're becoming one of our entourage. You know, the, the, the thing I love is uh, you're one of the people too who uh, there's several other people who they see a lot of the new movies immediately. And then I get texts popping up from either, you know, yourself or Amanda or, uh, different people to say, Oh, I just saw this. And so it's always fun. Yeah. And when I see a movie, uh, right away, it's like I'm waiting for everyone to kind of catch up. So it's, it's nice to have some, uh, uh, some, some feedback. And so I thought it would be fun to kind of have you come on and talk about some of the newer releases that just came up really over the past week or week and a half. And uh, I got to say, a lot of what we're talking about today is within the horror vein. I think we're seeing a lot of horror films come out right now. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's even one or two that I haven't seen yet just because of of how heavy the output has been lately, I think. Uh, That being said, though, I feel like we're getting some really interesting stuff. Uh, the, the, The start of the year you know, we kind of eased into it a little bit and we got, uh, though we'd got the cursed pretty much, uh, uh, off the bat and a couple of other movies, but I think we're starting to hit its stride in terms of, uh, higher profile films and then also the quality of those films. So I think, uh, what I'll do is turn it over to you and talk about one of the big ones that was released this past weekend, uh, which is Ty West's new film X. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I went and saw X on Saturday morning and I'm a huge Ty West fan. So I've been waiting for his return to, you know, a proper movie. Um, you know, huge fan of house, of the devil, the innkeepers, um, the sacrament, um, Valley of violence. Is that what that was called? But yeah, it was, it was a Western, not a horror. Exactly. Film. But no, huge fan of Ty West. So this was always one of my, kind of my most anticipated of the year. I kind of went in blind to it. Um, So yeah, let's go ahead and I'll just give us a synopsis and we can go from there. Sound good, Nathan? Yeah, sounds great. All right. In 1979, a group of filmmakers set out to make an adult film in a secluded farmhouse in rural Texas. Their reclusive elderly host take a special interest in their young guest. And as night falls in, the the couple's leering interest takes a violent turn. 
if I can get through that. Um, all right. So that's a pretty good setup. You know, they get out there and it feels very much like a 70s film or that older kind of independent film. They've done a really good job of getting the look down. And speaking of the look, I think this thing just has some really cool shots and really cool camera work where you're going down like a hallway, looking down like a POV shot. There's some great wide angle shots. I think the craft here is really excellent. What would you say, Nathan? Yes, for sure. I think that one of the things that I've probably complained about a little bit in recent years, uh, and, and and honestly, Ty West may have even contributed to this a little bit, was the is the influx of movies that are meant to look like older movies, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's done because that's what they wanted to make, right? They wanted to ape the style of this particular uh, subset of movie, whether it be like a grindhouse film or an old 80s horror movie. And then it's almost like in some instances – all they wanted to do was the style and they could, they didn't care as much about the story or even the atmosphere. Really. They just wanted to kind of take this style and slap it on there. You know, let's throw a couple speckle marks on here. I think Ty West right off the bat, right off the bat, pun intended, I guess with the roost, (laughs) uh, you know, which was a very low budget film, but even that movie had that feel of really kind of low grade seventies or eighties horror movie that then he even kind of, builds in the horror host into that. I wasn't a huge fan of that movie, but the atmosphere kind of drew me in and I, I was entertained. It just didn't leave much of an impression with me. So then later on when he does house of the devil, I think is where everyone sort of, you know, becomes aware of it, took that kind of replication and almost moved it into art because I think in some ways it, 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 not criticizes, but it has some commentary on that kind of film, but it's very subtle where he's just making this recreation to the point that it almost could be a film from the 1980s. And yet it's filled with so much like knowledge after the fact knowledge that we have now that someone making in the eighties wouldn't have that awareness that kind of creeps in at the edges. And he does the same thing here. This looks like a seventies horror movie. Some points it looks like a seventies, like X rated film, which is, (laughs) you know, that's part of the plot because they're there to make that kind of film. I thought the way he moved in between those two things was very interesting because you have the people making a movie. So there's a little bit of the movie within a movie and that it, it harkens back. I guess it is the style is wonderful and the images are wonderful, but I think it's too, he really gets an idea for the ambiance of, of setting the film. When you talk about the characters, you talk about the actual location, but then the feel and the atmosphere, like he reminds you that, yes, I have not seen many of them, but the 70s adult films back in the day were, were, were just on the fringe of being a movie, you know, more so maybe than now where there was some expectation, oh, we should have a plot and everybody working on this film has aspirations to become an actor or an actress so they're writing scenes where they can have some dialogue you know the plumber just doesn't come right in and get to work on the pipes (laughs) no no and um a couple of things there is there's a lake shot that i think is just beautiful um it's kind of an overhead shot and yeah there's just so much kind of gorgeous cinematography in this film that you really wouldn't expect but i think it's kind of the best of both worlds right Um, I think we get that it's not just like an elevated horror, whatever you want to term you, whatever term you want to use that Ty West has done in the past. This has a lot of violence and gore. It has a lot of nudity. And from what I'm seeing, Nathan, 
this one isn't really splitting the community. I don't know if I've seen a negative review on this thing yet. Have you? No, I don't think so. You know, I'm I'm sure they're out there and I might have heard a couple people, but it's that passing comment that sometimes you're always going to get someone who sort of predecides that they don't like something. Right. Uh, but I agree. I think the thing is that the movie is essentially what it is selling uh, itself as. Yeah. In fact, I would kind of say it's even it isn't really elevated horror at all. In a sense, it is sort of being uh, kind of shipped to us in that vein. But to me, Ty West doesn't make elevated horror so much as he makes like the quintessential slow burn. Right. Like yeah. his movies are still about all the things that horror people love. And, and, and they're not metaphors, you know. There's a haunted inn. There's a there's a babysitter trapped in a house and something horrible's behind that door. There's a here's a group of cultists and something seen maybe they're on the level, but something bad may happen before the before the visit's over. You know, those sorts of elements in his films play out the way they would in a normal horror movie. But what he kind of does is instead of making, at least in the other films, instead of making them a much more like traditional plot, it's almost like this is an like a like an art piece or a mood painting or something you know what i mean it's all about lingering in the setting he like gets you there i feel like if ty west could make virtual reality <laughs> movies you okay i've got you in the i've got you in this atmosphere in a lot of ways i think x is his best film from a narrative standpoint like he actually is telling a bit of a story here it's not that the others don't have stories but that the, they're, they're more like you know they have that feeling of like short literature mm -hmm. right that there's sort of a a beat towards the end where everything sort of comes into focus but before that it's dread lingering on the edges. So you're kind of just marinating with everybody as they, uh, as something approaches, something slouches towards them. And so in this movie though, I think you have a lot more going on with the characters and a much more narratively driven story because what's happening is you're getting perspectives of the old couple that are in the house we don't know exactly what's going on with them. You're getting the perspectives of the, of the group that's there to shoot the movie. And there's internal conflicts on both sides of those things. And then, I mean, the conflict is very weird and twisted, but you know what the old people want and what the, 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 the people who are making the movie want, like they're believable, relatable things. And I don't want to say too much more beyond that, but then the story gets itself going a little bit sooner as well. Right? Like, the 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 violence and the main action start much sooner than they do in most of his other films. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. The characters here, yeah, they're all going out to make an adult X-rated film, but they do such a good job of giving little traits here and there. They don't necessarily create full-fledged backstories or anything for any of these characters, but just the little traits, like Mia Goth's character how she kind of has this attitude as she's been cheated in life up to this point, right? And she wants something better for herself. And there's also a couple of, I think, really good storytelling moments that use music in this film. Um, some really good uses of music. I don't know what you thought about that, but those really yeah, stood I, out I to me. Yeah, I totally agree. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. I think this has the most story of any Ty West film, or at least the quickest to get going. Um, but once it gets going, it really doesn't let up. No. And I think the pacing is best here too. I think that for me, you get into the film and you're with those characters and the stuff where they're filming the movie. I've heard people describe this. Oh, it's kind of like boogie nights and it's kind of like the Texas chainsaw massacre. And, and those, those are easy touch points, right? To yeah. throw in, but yeah. they're not wrong because 
what was interesting in Boogie Nights was, and we hadn't really seen it too much before, was the camaraderie of the people on that set, right? Like Paul Thomas Anderson in that film decides that we're going to show these people for what they were, not what someone from the outside may assume they are. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think that Ty West is doing something similar. This isn't just sort of people show up to the cabin to get picked off kind of vein. It's a little bit of that. But I mean, I think he he sketches enough of these characters out. There's the 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 character who shows up and he's going to shoot the movie and he has these grand artistic envisions uh, of what he wants to do uh, right up until the point where the other actor decides he's going to sleep with his girlfriend in front of the camera, right? Yeah. And then all bets are sort of off. And you have those little dramas playing out. Uh, but again, I think, we again, we're not talking elevated horror. Uh, we are talking about a movie that has the beats of a of a pretty sturdy slasher. Yeah, absolutely. I was pretty surprised how much I ended l- up liking um, both Brittany Snow and Kid Cudi's characters in this film. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> they're the kind of characters that you could follow them through more like a Boogie Nights movie, right? Yeah. That, that would last for longer and give them arcs and we would be invested in them. And we know not to get too invested in anybody in a movie like this. But I would say there are definitely some surprising things that happen, I thought. There are there was an interesting development of that old couple, you know, who when they show up, you you get immediately the kind of heebie-jeebies with them. But I feel like there's development there. The way they're handled in this movie is a little more nuanced than it would have been handled in an actual movie made in like the 1980s. A a movie like American Gothic with Rod Steiger comes to mind. Like, you know, I feel like that would have been more what you would typically get, you know, Uh, something a little bit more campy. Then the violent scenes, again, without giving anything away, I love the way they're sort of shot. Uh, I'll I'll let you, I'll let you get your response because I have something else I want to say, but I think at that point I'm just going to be slagging on another movie. So yeah. Yeah, I think I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, I really do. Um, I'm yeah, I'm with you there about the the violent scenes. I think um, when I was writing up my notes for this, I think one thing I thought about this and it goes exactly to your point is I think this pleases the art house crowd and I think it pleases the gore hounds. And I think they do a good job of merging the two realities into this one cohesive movie. So I don't really want to say a whole lot about any of the the violence or anything that happens, but it's definitely there if that's what you're looking for. And it's been staged in such a way where it, uh, I think you go back to something like a Carpenter film where John Carpenter knew he didn't necessarily have to have an extremely bloody scene of violence. He just had to have one that would stick in your mind, you know, pun intended again, you know, that would, <laughs> would lodge itself in your brain. Um, through whatever <laughs> angle or, or orbis you want to deal with there. But, you know, now Ty West does does get a little squishy in places, I think, in, in a lot of his films. But I think he has that same sensibility where you're not necessarily going to get uh, something excessively extreme until he's ready to show it to you. And because he's waited so long, it's not going to be sort of a throwaway moment. Like, it's not going to be this thing where, oh, there's gore flying all over the place and the camera pans past it. And we made this all on a computer. Like, there's a thought and a care given to it that reminds us why we like scenes in movies like Poltergeist, right? And, and, and in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, they're staged in such a way there's a timing to them, just like there's a timing with comedy and things like that. And I feel like a lot of modern gore movies, let's just throw it on the table, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the new film that came out last month, a lot of what... 
what uh, Bill and I were talking about when we did our review, and I know you and I have talked a little bit too, is that you know that movie, a lot of the complaints I had about that film were sort of countered in a way by this one. And this yeah. movie has a far more like gritty feel that feels of a piece with Texas Chainsaw Massacre than that last movie did. Uh, were some of those scenes fun? Yeah. Was the gore cool in Texas Chainsaw? It was. But I didn't. For me, the sequences in this movie were far more uh, impacting, and they they lingered in my mind a lot more than that film. No, you're absolutely right, and I hate to uh, beat a dead chainsaw here, but um, <laughs> why not? Yeah, but no. Um, this has the connection with the characters that I wanted to feel from Texas Chainsaw, and also on another sense, there are some genuinely uncomfortable and unsettling scenes in this film. Um, that I just didn't get the vibe from, from Texas Chainsaw. So if we're comparing the two, I mean, it's no comparison for me personally, how well they set everything up and have everything kind of in place, but that could be, you know, the difference between a type, an auteur type like Ty West, who has more control and knows what he's doing when you have much more hands in the pots in that Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. But either way, I think the end product here is a lot better for me. The thing that makes the film work is, they are interested in the story, but they're interested in the scares and they're interested in making sure that stuff is as fine tuned as possible with still having an organic feel. I think that's what Ty West is good at and maybe what his other films in terms of story suffered a little bit because he is so much sort of the setting the, the, the he place setting everything, right? Like he's sort of setting the mood and he's setting the mood and he's setting the mood. And suddenly you're like, well, there's only so much foreplay before I fall asleep. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, some, a buddy of mine once said, well, they're not slow board burns. Ty West makes like smolders, <laughs> <They're> just smoldering <laughs> for a long time. And then you realize that, okay, all the heat's gone, <laughs> but I personally don't feel that way. But I think that, a movie like X is almost speaking to his his criticism there by by upping the the atmosphere, upping the horror elements to it. It gets creepy. It's also, I think that we haven't talked too much about this, but something it has in common with the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is it is at one perspective could be that this is a dark comedy. Like yeah. it's absolutely a horror film, but it has a dark <laughs> sense of humor. That's really kind of messed up. And there's a scene, not all the unsettling scenes you're mentioning here have anything to do necessarily with violence. No. <laughs> uh, and, and I love how some of these scenes interpreted through different lenses could be a positive thing for the characters or a bad thing. And, uh, you know, there's a certain yeah. point when you're like, but at that fact that I'm caring, see, that's the thing. Like, even the antagonists in this movie, I sort of care about where they're coming from and what they're doing. Doesn't mean I like them per se or anything like that, but. I realize that you have movies here where everyone has a different agenda. And even when they're bat crap crazy, they still have an agenda. And I think there's no sense where you just have sort of this killing machine and then fish in a barrel. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right on that. Um, that was perfectly said, Nathan. You've most likely been told that stay for the credits because there is something that comes up. And, and, and this is one of the few cases I think where it's actually worthwhile Absolutely. I did not know about anything that was going to happen, and I was a little bit surprised and, and delighted in a way. Um, and it's interesting that a movie like this would even be able to pull something off where you cared about what happened to the credits, right? Sort of a standalone, yeah. one-off film. I, I agree that all the performances are really fun, and Mia Goth is a lot of fun here. Uh, and then 
there again, there are things I can't say that some of the stuff was when I got to the credits and I was reading everybody involved, a couple of things sort of suddenly clicked for me. And I was like, I didn't know this at all. Yeah. So I, I highly recommend it. What's your rating on this one? Yeah. So I'll just say here kind of as closing Nathan, if you don't mind yeah, um, go for it. that I, you know, Ty West is back. I think, like you said, he took maybe his criticisms to heart and he hasn't really lost a step in the filmmaking craft. So I think this is one that's going to please a lot of people. Um, that opening weekend, it made about between four and five million. So if you're interested in this at all, please go out there and check it out. I'd come in around a 9.5 on this, Nathan. I'm pretty high on this film. Um, it's still a little bit under House of the Devil for me. I mean, that's one of my favorite of the century so far. But I've only watched X once, so who knows on subsequent viewings. But X is a fantastic film. Going as blind as you can. And, you know, I just have a feeling we're going to this isn't the last we've heard of Ty West. When I saw Hereditary Midsummer, I had a pretty good idea of what kind of movie they were. But I think some of your more um, general fans of horror movies, a lot of the people that we saw in the theater that night when when my buddies and I went to X, I think they walked out satisfied. And sometimes I've seen people walk out of movies like Hereditary Midsummer because they were expecting one thing. They heard the horror community was kind of up in in roar about it in a positive way. And then they got through the movie and they were like, well, that's not what I wanted. I don't think X is like that. I think that X, does it have elements where it's trying to take a more artistic bent on things? It is. But I think it's still designed to please that group of people that a couple months ago went to see Scream and really enjoyed it. Or even the people who saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and were really happy with it, you know? This movie is made for those people, too. Um, it looks like I'm low now, but I'm going to come in with an 8.5, which uh, I, I tend to, like, my grading scale, to me, that's that's a very successful horror movie. It's a movie I intend to to own uh, and just and put high up on my shelf so the children can't reach it. But um, it's definitely <laughs> an adult, not an adult film like the one they're making, but it, it it's got the content that you would expect from this sort of film that would have been made in the 70s or the 80s. And just like house of the devil. Like if you were to put that thing on a VHS and slide it into a shelf somewhere and someone picked it up, they might think for all the world it was made. Then you're not quite there with X, but it has all the sensibilities in place that you could play this at a drive in and, and, and pair it with something like, you know, uh, one of those late seventies, early eighties slasher movies. And it would, it would work perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, you know what, an 8.5 is completely <laughs> acceptable. I'm just usually higher than most yeah. people on things, Nathan. So if you take my score and you take it down like a <laughs> half point or so, you usually get about a good feel. But I wanted to say real quick to your thing about the, you mentioned Hereditary and Midsommar yeah. and that. I saw someone say, you know, if you like A24 films, you'll like this. If not, you won't. And I'm like, I don't know if it's necessarily the same as saying this is like a typical. I don't think you could compare this to like St. Maud, really. Or and one of like the that. guys I went with loves the A24 horror movies. And he uh, so you asked, I don't know, and I hated it. He hated this movie, but <laughs> but he admitted it was more of just an emotional kind of response to it. he was just sort of like, no, I didn't care for that. But. I think that when we're talking about the horror community, I think we are. I think this is a movie that's sort of aimed directly at them. And I think for the by and large, you're going to get something out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the next film we want to talk about is a movie that actually came directly to Prime. Uh, another film that is being, I think, sold as a horror film. Uh, it's listed also on Rotten Tomatoes, is listed as a mystery thriller and horror. And I think that uh, I will say up front, I think this is a film that does have the potential to alienate some people who walk into it expecting pure horror. I actually saw this movie 
at uh, the Sundance Film Festival. I didn't attend in person, but through the sort of virtual program, I saw it in just a couple months ago. And it's a movie called Masters, directed by Mariama Diallo. And it, in a lot of ways, I think it's uh, this one feels almost, if we talk about X sort of feeling like a res- not a response, but a, the other side of the coin for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre film, you know, I think it was Rod- Roger Ebert said, if you want to criticize a movie, go out and make another movie. <laughs> <laughs> that one obviously was was done, you know, the, wasn't enough time to have that movie come out. But my point is, if X is sort of the other side of the coin of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, then this movie Master almost to me feels like a response to the Black Christmas 2019 film we got a few years ago. And in fact, it's quite possible that, you know, there might have been some sort of influence or considerations this movie was being made because it has been a couple years since that film and this movie was uh, developed in the wake of that. But let me just read a small sort of synopsis and we'll go from there. This is another film that I think is better experienced in terms of its plot elements than, than revealing too much because it's another movie that sort of plays on our perceptions. But at an elite New England university built on the site of a Salem-era Gallows Hill, three women strive to find their place. Navigating politics and privilege, they encounter increasingly terrifying manifestations of the school's haunted past and present that's probably even a little too vague (laughs) but Mm -hmm. i think it it's interesting because in that synopsis there are issues that come up immediately i think uh, in terms of how people are going to perceive this movie for one thing using the word uh terrifying manifestations (laughs) uh and then even the mention of the of the salem era gallows hill i think when i saw this written up in the sundance guide I had images of a completely different kind of film. And I think that the movie, the kind of movie that master is, is not, it's harder to summarize. I think it's very conveniently summarized and, and sort of disguised as a horror film. Maybe even in the, in the vein of something like get out, you know, here's a horror movie that also has some social issues at, at its heart. And it has some things to say about racism and things to say about, uh, gender and things like that and how all of these things play together in a melting pot at a at like a college campus yes but i think that the kind of film it is is not the movie that was described in that synopsis and it's not really the movie that uh is even being described to us in the trailers of the movie and part of this issue is that by and large the horror that way we would consider horror is a fan you know, whether that be supernatural or malevolent, but something that's going to follow some genre elements is very minimal. And it's been done that way on purpose. So let me talk a little bit about some of the characters and then I'll open it up and you and I can talk about the movie, Trey. But Regina Hall's in the film and I actually think she's really, really good in this. I, I feel like I haven't quite seen her a bit since the 90s. And I remember back in the day, movies like Love and Basketball and everything kind of the late 90s. And she's She's here as Gail Bishop, and she's a university professor, and she's just been sort of appointed the housemaster at this elite college. This this college is, again, built on a site where there were witch trials. And that isn't as overplayed as you might think it. We don't have – we're not talking flashbacks to the witch trials or anything like that. But that that hangs over this college. It's not the only thing that sort of hangs over it. There's just a a general sense of – and a kind of oppressive element because on this campus, the three main characters we do 
follow are all African-American women who are clearly sort of trying to find their way through this very male-dominated sort of patriarchal tradition on this college campus. And I don't – it's – it's hard to talk about this on one hand for people who are who don't want any kind of social commentary. Oh, I don't want people to force feed me politics. Well, guess what? This movie is about these these issues, and so it and it does have its own viewpoint. And so sometimes it is going to push a little bit. That being said, I think what's what's interesting about this movie is that it specifically wants to open up dialogue and it specifically wants to look at this from a couple different angles. If this isn't throwing, I, I'm trying to think how to say it's sort of like woke social elements into the film because they think they're going to be popular, which is how I felt happened in the 2019 black Christmas. So this Gail Bishop character that hall plays, she's coming into a, a scenario that she kind of knows is stacked against her, but she has learned how to play this particular game. And so it's not that she's sort of rattled by very much, but there are things on this college campus that when we start to see these hints of supernatural elements, every time something creepy might happen, you know, when she gets into this old house that now she, that she's sort of living in, you know, she's locked out of it initially. By the time she gets into it, there's a foreboding sense about it. What is that foreboding? Because there is some supernatural presence or the spirit of a witch somewhere on the campus, or is it just the fact that there is that uncomfortable unwelcomeness that she would expect almost to find in a place like this. There's one scene that's set up almost like a horror scene where she, you expect her to find something really terrible in the, in the cabinet sort of under her sink there. And then what she pulls out would be a horrible thing to find in your situation, but it's not the thing we expect. It's sort of anytime we think we're going to get a supernatural terror, sometimes what we get is an uncomfortable reminder of how difficult this would be for a person in this situation. And a, rem a reminder, not racism is bad, but that racism sort of has these sneaky undercurrents and it can haunt a place as much as an actual ghost. That's not to say that there aren't some supernatural elements because then you also have this new student, Jasmine. I thought Zoe Renee played her really well. Who, who's having an even harder time in a lot of ways. She gets to the college campus and she also has to contend not with the, she has to contend also with, with the staff and with her teachers uh, and her professors, but she also has to contend with these other young women that are around her. And it's very interesting that like a scene early on, we see her in one shot when she first meets everyone. And then the next scene, her, her hair, which is beautiful has now been straightened, right? She's, she's, <laughs> she's like trying to, uh, kind of mimic and meld in with everybody. And in some way she's only drawing more attention. And then the third character, this Lib Beckman character is played by Amber gray. She's interesting because here we have this black professor who's, who's kind of very focused on what I think many would consider mm -hmm. sort of the woke elements, right? Mm -hmm. Once everyone to look at things this way, but there's a nuance to that because we see Jasmine responding to some of her teaching and saying, well, I just, quite frankly, don't see this. This thing that you're trying to make me aware of, it is invisible to me. This is not a part of, of, of how I react to it. And you're telling me to feel this way. At the same time, there are other students that clearly don't, don't buy into it at all, but are just feeding her what she wants to hear. And it's interesting that that conflict gets set up because Jasmine ends up doing something that could potentially cost this woman Liv, who's a friend of Gail's, cost her her tenure, right? So you see these 
perspective coming into play. And then there is this sort of urban legend on the campus uh, about potentially this witch that kills people. And I think that the storyline there involving the witch starts to go where we would want it to go, right? We get the, uh, again, almost in the Thai West sense, we see the atmosphere building and building, particularly Jasmine seems to be the target of this. And then we start to get what we consider traditional horror elements. There's some stuff involving maggots. I can always do without maggots, personally, guys. Like anyone making movies out there, maggots don't really, like, freak me out, but they're pretty gross. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) and and, But they don't necessarily scream terror to me. But I think that what they're trying to do here is weave this legend of the witch into the larger story about this women's experience on this campus. And for me, the movie works because it does do an effective job of showing us these people who are trying to navigate a situation. It's not just them. It's everybody on this campus. Nobody can do anything without the past sort of lingering and hovering over their head, not unlike some kind of cloaked shadowy figure. In a lot of ways, though, the film plays almost more like a mystery than a horror film because some of the things that happen and occur beyond the supernatural I was still trying to put the pieces together when the film ended and and the movie kind of wants to bring new revelations and blindside you with them that deal with the overall racism plot. And it sort of forgets its ghost story. I think the ghost story is still there. It's still effective and it still works, but it is muted. Be aware that that part is muted, but I think the overall tone of the film works for me in a lot of ways. The atmosphere on this movie was much more similar to the original black Christmas. Uh, And a lot of the shots and the, it, it, it creates that sense that, yes, college could be a really fun place if you've got a lot of people around you who are like you and interact with you and you can spend time with. It can also be a very lonely, suffocating, haunting place to be. And I think that the cinematography here captures that as well. But where the story wants to go and it really wants to be about these elements and it has things to say that I think should be said, that's the meat of the film. That works for me. I really liked that stuff, and I, again, liked Hall's performance. The conclusion of the film is kind of uh, confounding in a way. You sit there and you think, well, what is the point? What are they trying to say here? I think you're meant to take that out of the theater and think about it. But this isn't a get-out. This isn't uh, aimed at that at, at the same – it's not trying to do the same things I don't think the get-out was doing. I think it's opening up a can of worms that doesn't have any intention or can of maggots that has no intention of actually uh, solving for the audience – And it's going to leave you a little bit unsatisfied, I think, in the horror elements. But it works for me as a a strong film that maybe it's a little bit of a Trojan horse, you know, in terms of, hey, here's your horror movie, but it's really about this other. But I think ultimately it works for me as a kind of subtle, understated ghost story. Yeah, well, I think I don't think there's anything else to say. Let's wrap this up. No, (laughs) no, um, (laughs) no, you're absolutely right. And to your point, I watched this twice the same day. Because, and I never do that. I never do that, Nathan. I hardly ever rewatch movies as it is. I'm always looking for something that I haven't watched. Yeah, me too. But I had to rewatch this one because, one, I loved the elements of the um, story and the characters, but I felt like I was missing something with the horror. And to be fair, on the second viewing, I did have um, a little bit better of experience. Maybe I did miss a couple things here and there with the horror. But you're absolutely right. I think this falls more into the class of... And I think this was the term that Jay of the Dead used to describe a film like Krisha, which is social horror. I think that's the word he used. Yes, Um, it is. Yeah. So social horror, and I tend to use that especially a lot more now because I think we see it a lot more. 
and and feel free to cut any of this out if you feel like it's giving too much away. But I think this deals with very deep rooted um, issues and especially in a place like the Northeast, um, which has a lot of history, good or bad. Um, you know, New England has just been there longer than the rest of the country. And it tackles a lot of criticisms of academia, which I don't think we see a lot. And I think wherever you fall on, whatever side of the fence you fall on, I think you can see there's probably some issues in academia as we know it today. Um, I think it tackles things like tokenism and speaking for other people. And, you know, how do you, what do you do? How do you react to that? Because like you were saying, Jasmine is like just (laughs) blown away. She's kind of like flabbergasted by what occurs to her. And there's so many, um, you know, there's things dealing with stereotypes. I think in places, some people are going to find this. um, There's a couple of heavy handed moments, but overall it doesn't bother me like it does in other films, because I think what it's trying to say is a little bit fresh in some perspective. I don't think a lot of these issues have been talked about before. And I think the message is so good that I don't care if you're (laughs) trying to hit me over the head with it. And I don't think it is all the time. I think there's just a couple moments here or there. And there's this amazing scene, Nathan, and I won't get into too many specifics, but there's kind of this um, commercial juxtaposed against something else. And that actually had me thinking, you know, is part of this supposed to be like a black comedy? Because I was, I thought that was so well done and so well put. And it kind of fit so well um, into that kind of aspect of our culture. I know I'm being very vague and kind of dancing around it, but um, those were my initial takeaways of this movie. Yeah, that's really good. I, I totally agree, Trey. And you're, you're right about that where I think that if this were a Jordan Peele movie, he would be a little bit more acerbic with that scene. Right. Mm -hmm. And he would underscore that we're supposed to laugh. Maybe it's a little bit of a hollow laugh, but we're supposed to laugh when Regina Hall is reaching into that dark, crawl space and then what she pulls out right like mm-hmm. in a in a jordan peele movie she would they would that would be there for uncomfortable humor but there's something about the way this film is made that the way diallo captures all of this and the way that hall acts it and and and, and gray and, and renee as well that the way they there's there's almost so much hurt going on here that it is hard to laugh at it right it it, it captures it goes past the sort of cold irony of it and it just taps in you were so you can so understand these characters perspectives which is not something that could happen with the 29 the uh black christmas right and i think here's the thing that i find interesting about this movie and i know there's people out there listening that you know do have the perspective of oh this sounds it's too woke for me or something like that that's not what this movie's (laughs) about it's trying to present all the the way that everyone tries to juggle these issues and these feelings and you know it isn't a movie saying that person, that group there is racist and that makes them bad. It's it, it. Yes. It's not arguing that racism is racism is anything but bad, but it is also saying that the specter of racism is very complicated and it, it charges everything and it does touch and has tainted in some ways, everything to the point that everybody in this film, I don't think there's anyone in this film that is directly presented as a person who wants to be a proponent of racism, right? It's just right. that everyone's been sort of, particularly in this sort of, deeply seated college scenario it's it is like they're being haunted right there's some people who are just walking out what they've always done because guess what it's convenient for them but we see every character in this film choosing convenience many cases 
over what they may feel is the right or true thing to do. I was just say to me, the one character who does that, Jasmine, is the one who ultimately has to contend sort of up front and center with the with the with the manifestation, right? With the supernatural, the the sort of if there's a beating heart to this, a physical presence here. She's the one that has to go head to head with it because everyone else is going to kind of shy away from yeah, it. Yeah, they're they're dodging it. They're just pretending like, you know, everything's fine. There's nothing there. Um, and I think a counter argument, if you're sitting there and thinking, oh, well, this just sounds like some woke film, I think Amber Gray's character is kind of a critique on the other side of the and there's some interesting things that go on with that character, I guess, is what I want to say. Yes. Um, this is not the movie I think you're... Th- this isn't the movie you're probably thinking it is. I think that the way, the direction it goes will cause more people to scratch their heads in some ways, but yeah. they're really trying to... This movie is about something. It's about something in an intelligent way, and I think that most people... I think the character we are supposed to most sympathize with here is a Zoe Renee character, because mm-hmm. she is... She's she's targeted on this campus. She is at the she experiences the prejudice and the the like sort of veiled racist attacks from people around her her peers. But then she's also trying to think her way through this system. And she also ultimately, in a weird way, also becomes the target of these professors who believe that everything needs to be seen through the lens of race. Yep. And it's like. She's trying to have a clear-headed walk the line, and she can't She can't seem to do that. And I think the movie speaks to the tragic nature of the fact that, it, we, that this is still such a beating issue that we can't get away from it. That the real, you know, once some of the supernatural things have faded away, this, this racism element is still, it's nobody, no matter how much they, they try, seems to be able to get away from it in the, in the course of the film. Yeah, and um, you get the sense that uh, Regina Hall's character has been through what Jasmine's been through before. She just handled it a little differently. Yes. Um, And you kind of see the ghost of the past. And that's almost what we're seeing here more than anything like you had said earlier. So, um, yeah, I think it's an excellent film. It might disappoint someone looking for a straight-ahead horror film. But I think even if you like something like Get Out, um, which I think most people do, right? Um, I don't think you should just dismiss this one just because maybe it's not as straight ahead horror as you'd like it to be. There's still those very uncomfortable moments. It's just for different reasons. And what did you think about the atmosphere or, or sort of that comment about that, you know, to me, I felt like, and it has that wintry sort of tone to it, that there were some atmospheric flourishes that felt almost like the Black Christmas, the original Black Christmas, or a movie like The Black Coat's Daughter. No, you're not. You're not wrong there, Nathan. And I think you had mentioned um, just when a door early on in the film um, opens up, you know, in a certain way or when a character's in a library and, um, you know, lights go off or. (laughs) Yeah, I think I think it does a good job of setting up that atmosphere, especially there's some cool little, um, you know, when we do get into kind of the horror type elements, there's some cool moments. that don't it doesn't need it doesn't feel like it needs to explain them um and it just kind of lets them play out as they would so i i don't think you're wrong there i think you're on the right track with the atmosphere yeah there there is also i know you and i uh talk all the time about this kind of thing there is a sort of callback to the val luton school of 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 horror here i think Mm -hmm. in the way that the supernatural is presented and in those moments 
even though I think there could be more of them, it is that sort of thing. It's the, it's the shadows and the sounds and the implications more than it is the seeing anything. And I think that sort of makes it more haunting in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what's your rating on this one, Trey? So I would come in at an eight, I think, on this. I think I was originally around a 7.5. And I think that rewatch and just talking to you um, has kind of like bumped me up a little bit. So when you really sit down and think about it, it might take you a little bit to process this film and how you really feel about it. Um, But I think at the end of the day, there's a lot of good stuff here. It's maybe if I'm looking at it straight as a horror movie, maybe there's not everything I want, but there's just such a good um, sense of self and the world that this builds that, yeah, I'd come in at about an eight and I think it's a solid film. Um, I think you should check it out on Prime if you have access to that as soon as you can. Yeah, I'm about right there, too. I, I, I'll go a little higher with an 8.5, I think, because I think the film is so well acted and 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 produced at that level that as a drama, I think it works, too. And it does, like you mentioned, it does say something, and it has moments where it does sort of smack you across the face in a positive way. You don't feel like you're being talked down to. It makes you think about things, and I think that's a difficult thing for a film like this, right? Because when you walk into it, you don't want to be preached at. You know, hey, this is the topic. I've heard tons of people you know, wag their fingers at me. I don't want, I don't know. You know, of course I think that this is a bad thing, but what are you going to tell me that's different? And I think that this film has enough nuance to it that someone even walking in and just wants to put their hands up will can get into it. And it's through the vehicle of the characters, right? You mm-hmm. are able to see through their eyes in such a way that it does force you to have a little bit of empathy. I was going to say the one last thing I got on this Amazon Studios has been putting out a couple good things on Prime here and there. Um, you know, they bought, I don't know if you were familiar with it, Nathan, but Run Sweetheart Run a couple years ago, they bought. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they haven't done a thing with it. And I was no. kind of looking forward to that. It had some buzz going out. So Amazon Studios, if you're listening, uh, just drop that on Prime, man. I'll I'll be there day one. It, yeah, it's always a little strange, I think, how the with the process some of these films go through. Because anyone who's been listening to this podcast uh, knows that, you know, the past two years, I've got a chance to see things at Sundance. And it's odd that, you know, Master, which was just at this, I just saw a handful of months ago, it's coming out at the same time that movies I saw at Sundance all the way last year, you know? And then there yeah. are films coming out that were at the Sundance before, you know, before COVID even happened. But movies yeah, like, yeah, Strawberry Mansion and The Cursed, I saw all last mm-hmm. year, and they're releasing at the same time. I think by the time I bought my ticket for this one, Amazon had already announced, oh yeah, we're putting it up in a month or two. And that oh, oh well. <laughs> well, I think it's a I think it's a content race, Nathan. Yeah. I think a lot of the problem with 2021 was in 2020. Um in early 2021, we kind of burned through our VOD or streaming service, you know, yes. first day releases. And I think there was that hunger for content. Everyone's buying and bidding. And I think now you're seeing things put on the fast track. Um, you see them. Look at X. It debuted, I think, at South by Southwest. And a week later, it's out in theaters. Yeah. And that so, one always sort of had its trajectory. But it's like you see things snapped up. And then the next minute, they're out. And I think the other element of that is, you know, I think they saw the success during COVID of things like The Wretched. You remember, like, oh, yeah, there was a fun movie. I quite enjoyed it. But I mean. There are no other movies out, and suddenly there's this movie, and people are sort of latching on to it. And so now you see so much every week, as we can attest to just by these films we're talking about, every week there's 
three or four movies dropping in our in the genres we like. You yep, know? Yep. <laughs> Back in the day, how often was it that a horror film, uh, like one that we were interested in, would be released? You know, and we on the same weekend as a science fiction film or something like that, or a fantasy movie. And I think that that's the thing. Now we're getting multiple releases a weekend. I can't even see everything that comes out. You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, at the at the time it was released, and uh, which I think it speaks to the fact we have a couple more to talk about. So yeah, yeah, and I'll just say first. I mean, twenty twenty two is going to be insane because we've got the theatrical muscle to go along. I think we're going to see that same kind of onslaught we saw in fall of last year with yeah. theatrical stuff. And then on top of that, I mean, Nathan, I've got, I'm like one solid film away from having a top 10. I'd be happy with right now. If we ended the year for, and for it's horror films, you mean yeah, for horror films, for horror films specifically. And we're not even through March. So yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And I've actually in, in, in just films in general. No. Yeah. I did catch several Sundance, but yeah, you're right. Top 10s on both sides of the fence. I've seen just about, you know, to be fair, number 10 would be a pretty good movie. But yeah. you're right. Like, there's enough there that I wouldn't be necessarily embarrassed to say, hey, this is a this is a top 10. And uh, some of these films are talking about, you know, both of the movies we just talked about, I think, would, would be right there for me uh, somewhere on that list. So let's talk about a couple more. A movie that I'm kind of kind of swing back to because when it when it first released, which I guess it's been out for a few weeks now, I, I didn't get a chance to uh, review it initially with, with Bill, but I wanted to talk about the movie Hellbender, which mm-hmm. was a movie that first got any kind of review on our on our podcast back in the fall when uh, Jason Witchington, who's reviewed a lot of movies that we that I've kind of caught back up with, like uh, the Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes that I reviewed on last episode. And there's another one we're going to talk about today. He also uh, reviewed, but he mentioned this movie Hellbender, and it was it's a 2021 movie. It was really made during the the pandemic and in in on a very sort of low budget. But this movie was just recently released, and it is available on Shutter, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's the only place you can find it. Yes. Right now, and I'm going to turn it over to you, Trey, and take it away and talk a little bit about Hellbender. Yeah, Hellbender is just a cool little movie. Like you said, it's low budget. Um, this family is really awesome because they kind of do everything. They act in it. They do the directing and all this. The Adams family, right? Um, yeah. Not the Adams family. But um, yeah, but it's just great. Like the characters in this, the mother and the daughter, you really kind of feel for. There's enough moments of like kind of awkwardness in this film um, that kind of just get at me. And I. I'm anytime awkward moments are ha- happening in a film, I'm cringing already, Nathan. So yeah. they do a good job of kind of exploring that. This is really like a folk horror coming of age type movie, right? Um, and I just don't know the way it, it unfolds a little slow. We get a nice build up, I think. Um, but once we get there, man, this thing goes in some directions and it takes some, uh, some risks, I think. And just as this, um, and I'm trying to, I don't want to, uh, short change here. It's Zelda Adams, who is playing the character here of Izzy. And as she's becoming more and more comfortable with her situation and more and more familiar, um, the film just gets more and more interesting and takes you in some great directions. So it leads to some major tension between her and her mother, um, which I think really this, could be looked at as a film other than the coming age element of just a mother and daughter relationship, right? As you're going through that coming of age. So um, yeah, I'll kick it over to you, Nathan, 
to talk about whatever you got next on this one. Yeah, and the, so you mentioned the Adams family. That's one D, not two, but uh, we definitely they definitely have a macabre feel in this film. And mm-hmm. their previous movie was The Deeper You Dig, which I I really like that too. Uh, did you get a chance to see that one? No, I haven't seen it, but it's on my list now that uh, I knew that they did it. Yeah, it's on it's on Shutter too. One of the things that's very interesting, I think, about this movie about uh, the Hellbender is that it is very low budget. You can totally see how this was sort of filmed in the midst of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And there, the storyline, which we didn't get into a, a lot here, sort of unveils itself a little bit at a time. We see a mother and a daughter sort of living out in the middle of the woods. Uh, and interesting, too, they're part of a band together that's called Hellbender. And they rock. Yeah, it's all, they're awesome. <laughs> and Toby Poser, who, who is Zelda's mom in real life, is playing her, her mother here. And then her, uh, uh, her other daughter is also in the film playing a, like a friend or a, a girl that Zelda meets. And uh, that's Lulu. She's you get the idea that they're cloistered for a reason that has to do with the mother protecting the daughter from something, at least in her in her own mind. But we aren't quite sure at the beginning whether this is sort of some sort of uh, twisted, overbearing desire to cloister her to prevent her from going out into the world to protect her or if it's to protect the world from her. And right. And I think that in the in, in the real world, sometimes with mother daughter relationships or even parent child relationships, you sort of feel that way. You know, at some point you you want to make sure your children don't go out and get hurt, but at the same time, you you also want to make sure they don't go out and tear it apart. You know, and <laughs> uh, and and have all these consequences that come with that. And so you're absolutely right that it's a very smart movie. I, I think because it does a lot with a little bit, and it has uh, it's again. I people talk about was well, a horror movie or is a comedy. This is not a comedy film, but this is a horror movie with a dark sense of humor. I think you can see that even with the very last scene of the film yeah. and, but it matches that with this. It is definitely that kind of indie drama where you have, it is about a mother daughter relationship. It's not veiled. The, the things that happen with Zelda Adams character aren't a metaphor. We learn pretty quickly as things are revealed that yes, there is a supernatural element here, there is sort of a uh, that folk heritage that uh, comes back and affects these characters, but they kind of just play that pretty straight. You know, I've been watching a lot of folk car recently. We had that really cool uh, documentary that play that's also available on Sh- Shutter. I think it's uh, mm-hmm. Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. And mm-hmm. earlier this year, Seven released a really cool folk car box set. So I've been going through that. So uh, you'd think I'd be folk hard out at this point. <laughs> But what's cool here is that they take those things that we associate with that subgenre, right? And then they mix them with this kind of more modern, more, you know, uh, in some ways uh, more modern, but it's also a little bit what we expect from most indie sort of dramas like this, right? So there's a sort of well-worn path. And then we've gotten to a point where this kind of well-worn path is become tedious right it's like how many times can we see mother and daughter butt heads over i'm becoming a woman you know things like that uh and i don't know how is this movie any different than the pixar movie where she turns into a panda i'll leave that for you to figure out but (laughs) the the way they meld the horror into this it doesn't need to be a metaphor it's about a mother who who has her 
daughter's best interest at heart. But the fact that it's just the two of them means that that everything is tangled up together, right? That at what level do we want to protect our children? We want to protect ourselves, our own hearts, our own lives. And then what happens when that comes smashing up against reality and against all the other things in the world? You know, you can't protect everybody forever. And that's a pretty well-worn path for, for horror films and for indie dramas. But this movie finds a new way to deal with it in a way that's really compelling and 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 creepy, you know, you and, and enjoyable because the horror doesn't get pushed to the wayside. I don't think. I think that it's kind of it it's meshed really well with the with this story. Is it going to hit every high note you're expecting? Probably not. It is low budget. It is working against constraints, but I think within the constraints, it's very compelling. It's well acted. You the the camaraderie and the relationship and the tensions that that these actors bring to the table they feel genuine and I, I guess it helps that they are related you know but it's um I really really enjoy this film and I really enjoy the direction that this group of uh, uh, uh this this dynamic of this family making films together I mean that's my dream right I love to, <laughs> to be my daughter wants to to make little short films now and, and we're trying to do all that together but it's so cool to see them create something of this caliber of this level yep absolutely what what's your rating on this one so I'd come in around I think an 8.5 I really liked this movie um it really kind of stuck with me so um and I think a lot of people have already seen it i think they're pretty quick on those shutter releases yeah um, yeah but if you haven't it's one to yeah, see for sure absolutely what about you nathan i'm a, just this i bill would be surprised by this because i'm almost never this high but i'm 8.5 uh, 8.5 bill today so yes i think and i i the first time i saw the movie i've seen it twice now I enjoyed it and I thought, hey, this is effective and it's good and hey, it's a really strong, solid movie. But it's that second viewing where you really come to appreciate that mother-daughter relationship to the point that it becomes so focal to the film and you're just happy that someone is telling this kind of story with these imaginative flourishes. You're, you're happy to have the full car, but you're happy to have the other part too. There's never a point where they feel like they're fighting each other, you know? Right, right. Absolutely. Okay, so the last film I want to talk about is another one that's also relatively uh, low budget, I think, and it's going to be even harder, I think, to talk about in terms of plot without giving anything away. I think that's the tricky part about a lot of these movies, particularly in this genre and this kind of film, is that we are seeing uh, filmmakers hold back a little bit, right? And not give you everything up front and make the movie a sort of game. But at the same time, the last three films we've talked about, they found a way to satisfy. I think, you know, there is, this isn't like me opening a bunch of Russian nesting dolls and in the middle, the, the last one has a bunch of dog crap in it. You know, it's like, <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, no. So I think that one of the interesting things about a lot of these films we're talking about is you find that they have a solid foundation, but they found an interesting way, an interesting structure to reveal things to us. Uh, this one, I would argue, is probably the most twisty turny of the movies we've talked about tonight. Uh, again, definitely uh, independent horror, but or independent. I'd say this is probably more sci-fi drama if you uh, and thriller. There are, to me, horrific elements. I think if you're someone who is freaked out by the ideas in the film, then this very well may be a horror movie to you. But this movie is called Ultrasound. It's from 2021. And 
I think that uh, I'm trying to think of a way to describe this movie without describing this movie <laughs> in a sense, because yeah. I don't know uh, exactly how you felt, Trey, but I will say this, that this movie is a sort of mystery puzzle box kind of film. I don't mean that in any kind of negative way, but the moment the movie starts with its very first image it starts to give us information at the same time that's withholding other information. And everything is building inexorably to the very end of the film. I'm going to read this synopsis, and it's it's relatively vague, and I think we should, it, we should keep it that way. Driving home during a rainstorm, Glenn experiences car trouble and gets help from a strange couple that give him an offer he can't refuse. At the same time, Katie, a different character, is feeling weighed down by a secret and then we have a third character who's a medical practitioner who begins to question her involvement in something where she works. I know that sounds very, very vague, and I'm sort of doing that on purpose, and I will get into a little bit about who play the, the, the actors who play these characters and you know their, their kind of part in the story. But would you say, Trey, that's about a – is there anything you'd like to add to that basic synopsis? No, I don't think you can really add much to the synopsis of this one without giving stuff away. No, I think that what you have is ultrasound, even before the, and, and this is becoming more and more popular, right? That we are very rarely getting credits right up front in a movie now. We've had at least a couple of movies that have gone, Drive My Car goes about 45 minutes in before we have a, a full-blown credit sequence. Fresh has goes, you know, goes about a half hour or, or thereabouts. And this film doesn't go quite that long, but I'd say you're going in about 10 minutes. The titles come up and you're seeing different perspectives. And so Glenn, who's played by Vincent Carthizer, who I remember from Mad Men and even before Mad Men, he was on Angel. I mean, he's done quite a bit of stuff, particularly on television. And so it was nice to see him again. I had, you know, I was like, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. You look a little different. <laughs> but um, he's the guy who car breaks down. He's headed to a wedding or back from a wedding and it's in the middle of the night. And what, you know, it here's this house right there and it's pouring rain. And that's always a good sign, right? Yeah. Now the very first scene, the very first image of the movie, I will just say is a line of nails and you see the car driving over it. So right yeah. off the bat, you get this sense of foreboding. And so when he goes to that house inside the house is Cindy who's played by Chelsea Lopez and Art, Bob Stevenson, Art's the guy that opens the door. He seems like a nice, unassuming guy, but he likes to keep dropping hints that, not hints, he just likes to tell everyone, I'm depressed, and I take medication for it. But it's in a weird, backhanded sort of way. You know, he has to look at his watch, and then uh, uh, Cindy has to remind him, oh, go go take your medicine. And so it's all very it's all very sort of clandestine until he gets back and just likes to blurt out, I'm a depressive, and Aren't you glad you're not a depressive? You know, he's the kind of yeah. overbearing, obnoxious that you're glad he's letting you in out of the rain, but you're also thinking, how can I get away from this guy? Right. And then you get this very bizarre sort of scenario where Bob is making the case. Well, you know, the guest room's filled with stuff. Why don't you, I'll stay on the couch. You go upstairs to my bedroom and, and get in the bed. And by the way, my wife's in there. <laughs> the, and the way that scene plays out is very strange and very sort of surreal, even though everything hap nothing happening in it yet is particularly strange. But then we go upstairs, we follow a conversation the two of them have, and then we do flip over to a completely different character uh, who, it, you know, it takes place. And we kind of go right into a scene in a swimming pool. Well, I thought it was, it was fabulously shot because there's this weird 
you've got a lot of really cool auditory things going on in this film, and the kind of you play into the plot a little bit. But you get this great scene where you got that kind of droning soundscape, and you see this woman underneath the water, and it's almost like she's almost like petrified, right? Almost inside mm-hmm. of like a like a amber or something. You see her kind of caught between the water and the and the sky above inside the swimming pool. I thought it was an amazing shot, and it sort of it sort of opens you up to this film that is about people who seem who don't know and can't seem to get a bearing on who they are or where they are. They wake up in these events and we're not quite sure ever what's going on. I mean, and that to talk about that character who gets out of the swimming pool, I don't think this is too much to give away that we see her within about five or six minutes, we get out and we see people talking to her and, she, and, and they're referencing the fact that she's pregnant, but that is not what she sees in the mirror. When she looks in the mirror, she doesn't see a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Rainy Qualley plays Katie. That's the woman we were just talking about who mm-hmm. is convinced that she's pregnant. As the movie goes along, we meet other characters. And it's not too long before we realize that things aren't the way that Glenn and uh, Cindy and Art and the rest think they are. You know, And mm-hmm. some of these characters know more than they're letting on. And some of these characters may not even be who they think they are. After that, I, you can't say much except that this is a movie you cannot like watch while you're on your phone. No, you can't. I initially tried to watch it while I was working. I'm uh, not. Excuse me, not while I was working. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to watch this while I was working on stuff for the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I'll have it in the background. And I don't watch all movies like that, but I thought, hey, uh, you know, uh, let's see if this catches my attention. And it was about two or three minutes in, and it was clear that I needed to be 100% focused on this. In fact, I just watched it just by myself because I didn't even want the distractions of, of my wife asking questions about what's <laughs> going on here. Because I was having a hard time, honestly, keeping track of this. This is a very twisty, turny film. I would put it in the science fiction category for sure. I wouldn't say it's horror in the conventional sense. Uh, but I would say that it definitely is unnerving. And part of the unnerving is that we are kept in the dark almost as much as the characters. Things that are confusing to them are confusing to us. We feel constantly sort of pinned down and then sort of jerked around. And again, I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way because the movie just keeps twisting and turning and it's kind of challenging you to keep up. And you're trying to keep track of all of these things. What gets me through this, though, is I think that the characters, uh, even though the film is low budget, you can see the care put into the filmmaking. And I think the characters are interesting and the actors do a good job of keeping us invested in them long enough to figure out what this giant pinball machine is that they're being banged around in. Mm-hmm. Another benefit to me is that I love those kinds of movies where reality is not what you think it is. You know, the movies that get really big and grand in those ideas, movies like The Matrix, or like Dark City, like The Truman Show. But in a way, this is not that movie. This isn't a movie that I think is extremely out there in terms of what it's trying to position us for. I've said many times, hey, make a great X-Files episode. This basically is an X-Files episode at feature length, yet they've made a concession for the fact that you know a lot of those movies, and they, when they don't end up being good, it's like, well, what were you missing? Mulder and Scully. I think they make up for that here by keeping us characters that I think we're, we're pretty much interested in, at least I was. Uh, it's very twisty, turny. It's kind of hard to keep up with. And then at the end, I was still locking pieces together when the final scene comes. So I had to almost like, re, you know, go back a few scenes and watch those again because I was getting sort of an Inception vibe. Except I think 
in in some of the movies that Christopher Nolan does, I feel like he wants to give the idea of big mysteries more than really exist. You know, I think if you think four or five minutes into the film, you're thinking Tenet was this way too. It's like, okay, if I lay all this out in a straight line, it all makes sense. It's just been presented to me in a confusing way. I think ultrasound, and I can't even tell you I'm 100% sure about this. I think this is a legitimately twisty, turny puzzle that I'm not entirely certain I put together correctly. <laughs> no, no. And I honestly, Nathan, I don't have a whole lot else to say on this one other than what you've went through. But I will say that this one, I think, went over my <laughs> went over my head a little bit. Um, and we start there when we're in that first um, 10 or 15 minutes of this film. I was really engaged and I was really into this. And then it kind of like goes down, like you said, it switches characters. And I kind of found myself getting lost a little bit. Um, and I tend to struggle a little bit where you love kind of those very much, I would say, heady sci-fi films. Yeah, so it's like um, my catnip or whatever. You yeah, want yeah, and I like some of those too. But with this one, for whatever reason, I just couldn't keep up. And it kind of just, it's. I cared about a few of the characters in this for sure. But at some point, I'm like, this thing's losing me. <laughs> I get that. And I think that, and then again, I'm not entirely certain to be able to say that I was with it hundred percent. Now here's, here's what I will say. And I don't know if you will agree or not. I think for anyone who's listening to this, I think this does end up in a more conventional thriller sort of format. Ultimately, like I think you can track a to B about what happens, but the presentation of it and what the movie is about, that's the difference than like, say a, a tenant or something. It's not simply being presented to you in a weird structure, the structure is part of what's happening to these people's lives. These people's lives don't look linear because of what's be what's happening to them. Mm-hmm. And but again, this isn't necessarily like what I would consider the quote unquote big reveal happens about halfway through the movie, wouldn't you say? Like the primary yeah. reveal. Then the movie is dealing with all of the potential fallouts and implications of what it is presented to you. So don't go in. It's expecting, Hey, I'm going to watch this twisty turny movie. And then we're going to get a big mind blowing, like going to knock my socks off conclusion. That's really, really wild. This isn't quite that movie. This is playing with ideas that go all the way back to a film. Like, I don't even want to say what that film is. <laughs> but it, was a, it was a movie from the 1960s. And it's a movie that I think many films like this have tried to emulate and have used as fodder for years and years and years. And it's a very good film. Uh, I do think this is a good film too. I one thing I do like about movies like this, and there's a movie several years ago. Did you ever see the movie Upstream Color? No, no, I did not. Uh, another very weird, twisty film. That one was far more uh, esoteric, and that one did linger and had more of a very artistic vibe. I think you would agree with me that this does feel, in a lot of ways, in the way it's shot and delivered, like a like a straightforward thriller, it's just that the things that are happening can't be pieced together a straightforward way. You know, this yeah. isn't excessively arty. It's just that it is very much fragmented. There's a scene where we see a man cutting out what looks like puzzle pieces and just throwing them into this big bin, like almost like look like they belong in a Jenga game. And I thought, is that a metaphor for what it was like to write the script? He just cuts <laughs> out this very specific, intricate piece and then throws it on a pile of what looks like 300 identical pieces. And I thought, okay, there's the that's supposed to tell me something. I just don't know what it tells me. <laughs> but I do you get the feeling? And you maybe the movie didn't interest you enough to know this, but I kind of like a movie where it's like I don't feel like I've grasped it all. Like there is a feeling of sort of frustration, but there's a feeling, Hey, I can go back to that movie. Have you ever finished a movie? and You're like, yep, I'm all done. 
<laughs> don't need this anymore. I can never <laughs> I watch certainly this again. Have. Um, yeah. With this one, like I said, I had a little bit of a connection to those characters in the beginning, for sure. And I could I could follow, you know, it took a little time for those to click into place, but I did kind of follow a little bit of it. Um, and I'm not going to lie and say I didn't have to go back and look up and, you know, plot summary for this movie after it was over. <laughs> because there are a couple times when I'm not 100% sure. I could see maybe um, knowing what's going to happen and trying to pick things out as you go back through the second time that it might raise up for me on a repeat viewing. Yeah, yeah. I do think if you like this kind of movie the way I do, uh, that there's a lot to savor in it. I do ultimately agree a little bit, Trey, that it isn't um, – it's not quite a knockout of the park, but I, I do hold – that that may be because I just didn't quite absorb all of it. And it is a movie that I was interested in. I actually, it's streaming. You do have to pay for it at this point. So you can, it's like a $7 rental, I think. And I think it was like $15 or something to purchase it. I actually purchased it. And I'm not sorry I did because I plan to watch this with my wife and prepare to answer what questions I can. But, and I can see myself watching this one, maybe, you know, one or two more times uh, and unwrapping more of what's in there. I was interested enough in the film for that. So for me, this is, you know, I, it was strong enough that I'm going to go and give this one in a 7.5. I think if you know if this is your kind of movie, if you like that sort of film, if you're watching a character do something in one space and then in the next scene, we're talking about a completely different character. And the next time we see character A, they believe themselves to be someone different than the first time we saw them. If that kind of thing gets you excited, this would be your kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm coming in at around a six on this, Nathan. Okay. And I think it's... I would say it's worth it. If you know what you're going into and you kind of, and I think you would, if you listen to Nathan talk about it here, um, I think you can kind of see your expectations or where you would fall in this film. This isn't necessarily my type of film in general, but I think there's enough good there to warrant a recommendation for someone who would be into this kind of stuff. I'm not upset. I watched it. I'll say that Nathan, it was a, it was a fun ride. Um, I just don't think everything clicked for me at the end. Here's the thing I'll say about it. I just think that it is engaging. And if you want a puzzle, that's what you're looking for. But a puzzle that actually does provide the pieces to solve it. I think that while we still have questions, I don't think this movie is is open-ended in a sense of, well, you'll never find out what was going on. You know, it's not like a lost per se. Right. Right. Okay. So that's that's kind of what we have. But I mean, that's four movies. I think we're all on the recommend side. I think, you know. I think ultimately I like the ultrasound a little bit more than you, but I think that mm-hmm. uh, I, th- I think that that's a movie that's going to be sort of you're going to know whether it's in your wheelhouse or not. And otherwise, I'd say get out to the theater if you can, if you're if you're comfortable doing that, and see X. I think it could always use some support. It was a mm-hmm. low budget film, but it's still I don't think it still made the kind of money it really needed to make. No, I think it's just a little bit short right now of its yeah. budget and. Given that they have other things they want to do in that kind of world, I think I would, I'd like to see it, uh, uh, you know, kind of maybe be one of those sort of slow but steady films, you know, the way something Mm -hmm. like It Follows was that sort of hung around for a while and made a dent little by little by little. And uh, I think I think that would be cool, uh, particularly and maybe it has space to do that in a world where right now everything is dominated by the Batman. (laughs) Right. But no, I can echo that. And hopefully, hopefully it gets enough to kind of be profitable, at least. That's all. Yeah. And then, Trey, did you have one more film I think that you wanted to talk about? Oh, yeah. I'll just mention it really quickly because I think this is a very much straightforward film than the other ones we talked about. Um, And that is Catch the Fair One. It came out 
a couple, I think at the beginning of February it came out. Um, but that's a pretty cool film about a boxer who sister was abducted into this trafficking ring and she's basically inserting herself into this trafficking ring to try to find her sister. It's a very, uh, brutal, um, not a very happy film, but it's a cool little action thriller type film that I enjoyed. Um, I think it goes along at a good enough pace. Um, and you know, it doesn't get too bogged down in itself. I think it's a pretty cool film. I don't know what you thought about it, Nathan, because I think you'd seen it as well. Yeah, I have seen it. And I went, this is one where I was trying to remember what film festival did I see this one at? And it's kind of, it's a revenge thriller really right at its heart. Yeah. And it is gritty. Uh, it does feel like there's a little bit of the noir elements to it. I think, um, mm-hmm. man, it goes dark, right? Um, yeah. And it's, so one thing that to kind of tell you is it's executive produced by Darren Aronofsky, which oh, I think yeah. gives you some pretty good insight into the kind of film that you're going to get. But what I, what I love here though, is again, you're kind of outside of the, of the, of, of the story, which does, I think it, think it would be fair to say and you kind of alluded to that this does deal with sex trafficking mm-hmm. uh, but it is that film that sort of is again it's a revenge thriller and it is a bit of an action film that that you that isn't trying to like just use the human trafficking as sort of a as an angle or as a fun little like exploitation prop it's not doing that at all i think it kind of delves into that world and shows the kind of the, the 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 tragedy of it and then i think what's also interesting is that you're seeing this from a perspective you don't often see which is that this native american woman that kaylee uh reese plays she you really get into her perspective and into her head and in her unique experience and i think of all the movies we've talked about in a lot of ways this has the strongest central character yeah you know and yeah, i, I think so. that's what makes this movie work so well and it really um, and she's really good. I thought, I thought that, uh, I don't know what you thought about it, but I thought she was, she was quite strong, but she also has a very visceral presence. You know, this isn't, we're not necessarily talking about this really nuanced acting. We're just, it's kind of a, it's kind of a very, um, forceful and physical performance. And I really liked yeah. that about it. And it had that kind of gritty, this is the kind of character you want to see kind of, uh, battle their way through this kind of landscape through this sort of the, the these people these people deserve this person <laughs> coming, yeah. coming after yeah. them and i think that what's cool is this movie feels like uh i think that yes there's a little bit of an imbalance when you have the revenge thriller and then the trying to kind of shine the light on these social issues does that is that a perfect marriage i don't think it is but I would rather have – now, don't get me wrong. I enjoy, you know, everyone enjoys every once in a while that Liam Neeson kills the world kind of movie where he right. fights like 150 people, uh, like those Taken films. But to me, give me a movie like this uh, that doesn't kind of shy away from the ugliness. Now, I don't want this movie every time. Like you said, it's dark. It's kind of depressing. But it kind of gives you a punch to the gut in a way that those other movies don't. Mm-hmm. And I uh, that makes it unique. I really liked it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, like I said, I don't have a whole lot more to say about it because I think it is very straightforward, but I think it's definitely worth checking out. Um, I think I'd come in, Nathan, around a seven and a half on this. I don't know where you're sitting at. 
I'm a, I'm a solid eight on this one. I really, I really enjoyed it. I think that it's got some issues, but overall, uh, yeah, this is a really strong crop of movies, to be honest. Like, yeah, these are movies. Some a few of these are streaming where you can purchase them. And, and, and in both cases, I, you know, I haven't purchased this one yet, but I would have no problems doing it. I think that I would, you know, if we're say, is this a buy or a rent? I mean, definitely rent it. But if you know, this is your kind of movie, I mean, I would say this is a buy, except that me personally as a physical media fan, I know you are too, that I'd be waiting to get this one on like a Blu-ray or a 4K or something like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Some of these movies like Ultrasound, I didn't mind buying it that way because I don't know that like High Def is going to add much to that movie. <laughs> you know, in right, some cases, right. some of these films we talked about today, High Def only makes them look more low budget. <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that's all I have, Trey. Thanks so much for, for joining me. Is there anything else you want to talk about or comment upon? on this one or any of the movies we talked about? I don't think so. There's just a lot of good stuff out there. So, you know, catch up if you need to. There's just so many good films. So, but I really appreciate you having me on again, Nathan. It was fun talking to you about these movies. Yeah. And before we go, go ahead and, uh, uh, let everybody know where they can find you plug whatever you want to plug and don't, you know, you can find Bill and I both (laughs) over on, on, uh, on, on your show and in recent episodes. So, Yeah, there'll be an episode. I host a podcast called Screaming Through the Ages, where I typically focus on the history of horror movies. And yeah, I recorded an episode with Nathan that went out, gosh, it's almost a month ago now. And then Bill, there's an imminent episode uh, featuring Bill that'll come out with our top 10 Vincent Price films and going into Vincent Price's background a little bit. Um, And then to tease out a little bit more, I'm going to be getting into video nasties after that. So and kind of the more history uh, focus and not necessarily the watching all of the video. Oh, good. You're not there. setting yourself up for the pain that that, that inevitably <laughs> ends up being. <laughs> no, but yeah, um, really having a good time over there on that show. And you can find me over at Twitter. Um, the podcast is at Screaming Ages. Um, I do have a letterboxed account. It's just Trey W. And uh, yeah, you can, there's a Facebook group for the podcast now just screaming through the ages and you can find me anywhere that you uh, get your podcast at. Very cool. Thank you so much, Trey. And again, if you guys get a chance to check out some of these movies and for Phantom galaxy, feel free to send us a message and let us know anything that you would like to see reviewed here. I think too, if uh, the Trey, I'm sure you're in the similar that if, Hey, there's something that people want to see covered, kind of reach out. And yeah. uh, I love your show. I'm really looking forward to whenever you find your way around to, 1950s monster movies (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know we talked about that i've stockpiled some of those so um (laughs) and we'll be covering some of that over here as well and we will be having you back in the in the near future as well so thank you so much for joining me check out trey's podcast it's a great one and uh now let's move on to our next segment trey and i got a chance to see a movie that's just released in theaters this is a film that we do have i mentioned we have a kind of three tier spoiler for this movie because it's a movie that if you really want to walk into it blind that may be the absolute best way our first here is going to be really spoiler free except for a very basic setup of synopsis of where the movie begins not for where it goes then there'll be a, a, a tier two and a tier three tier two is where we give you a more basic idea of just of what was seen in the trailer and then tier three is not still very spoilery but just enough to talk about a few elements of the film that help us talk about some things we either liked or didn't like about the movie let's go ahead and get into it it is a 2022 movie just released into theaters it's it sort of had a rollout i think where it was in limited release for a little bit but the movie is called everything everywhere all at once 
It's directed by Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinart, and they, they kind of refer to themselves as the Daniels. You'll see their, those names pop up sometimes in the credits as directed by the Daniels. I hadn't wasn't really aware walking into this film that I had ever seen any of their movies before because I wasn't sure what really they had directed. Uh, together, they did direct a movie called Swiss Army Man, which I have seen, and I wasn't a huge fan of I think I actually reviewed it on the very, very, very early days of Phantom Galaxy when it was called Pop Culture Ninja, and we uh, back then, I think I said of it that it had a lot of wild ideas, but no real structural uh, frame to it that, that held it together, that really made it come together as a as a film. It just felt like a lot of really crazy, sketched out uh, concepts and yeah, throw it at the wall, see what sticks sort of thing. And the other movie that, that uh, I think uh, the one of the directors, I think it's Shineart was involved in directing was the death of Dick Long. I did not see that movie. I've heard that that one is also pretty strange. Trey, have you seen that movie? No, I haven't seen either of those that you had talked about. Yes. And so the, we come to this film that I had seen the trailers for it. And even the trailers, which kind of, Gave me the the wavelength that this is a movie that's going to be full of crazy ideas. I'll kind of leave it at that for the most part. I think it is safe to say this is a science fiction fantasy film. Uh, It is also could be described, I think, in some ways as a a family comedy with some black comedy thrown in as well. Uh, The cast caught me immediately when I saw the trailers and it's a, it's a diverse cast. Uh, It's a very interesting cast. Michelle Yeoh, who I have loved ever since the days of like seeing her in you know across from Jackie Chan in the in the uh, uh, one of the police story movies, which I think was released here in the states, Super Cop, and you know watching her smash into billboard signs and stuff alongside Jackie Chan, uh, and then seeing her later in Tomorrow Never Dies, and then later in of course probably the the movie that really solidified her here in the states was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and then in all the roles she's had since then, even even most recently being in Star Trek Discovery, having a role there. I, she's a, I'm a big fan of hers, and it was really cool to see her as the star of a film uh, where some of her martial arts prowess, you've watched the trailers, seems to come into play, but mostly uh, she's here as the central star, the person who's going to hold the movie together. Uh, she's also joined by uh, Kei-Hee Kwan, who, honestly, I don't know that I'd seen him in anything since the days of uh, Data and Short Round. You know, he played Short Round in... Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Data in the Goonies. And it was your, for me, it's even though he's much, much older, it's, you can infinite, you can instantly tell who he is. You know, he sounds the same. He basically looks the same. And uh, there's a, a great cast. Uh, Stephen Hughes in the movie, Jenny Slate. you uh, James Hong, I saw, is mm-hmm. like immediately in the trailers. And I thought of Lopan from <laughs> Big Trouble in Little China. Speaking of uh, John Carpenter, Jamie Lee Curtis shows up in the trailers and looking very much non Laurie Strode and also kind of reminding you that Jamie Lee Curtis for all of her screen queen origins spent a large part of her career doing some pretty funny comedy movies. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, when I saw her in this, uh, the the trailer show her playing a IRS agent that uh, they, they come to visit and, the let's just say that the 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 vibe I was getting is maybe closer to her time in A Fish Called Wanda or some of those movies that her husband Christopher Guest makes. So I think uh, I think it was clear that this was a, going to be a strange movie. I will give you the most basic plot that we can, and then I think we'll just give our. I'll let you go first uh, and just talk about what your impression of the movie was. But I want to say up front, this is a movie that's going to throw a lot of things at you. And 
it starts with a framework that take that puts us you know very very uh, casually into the real world and then starts to subvert that in a way that uh, gets very creative, gets very uh, complex. And I think it's safe to say all those things. But let me go ahead and set the basic plot of the movie up. So Yo's playing Evelyn Wang. She's a Chinese-American woman, and she has this struggling laundromat business that she runs with her husband, Wayman, who's played by Quan. The movie picks up in the middle of sort of a, a, a day when... Thing, tensions are very, very high for Evelyn because she is going through all of her receipts. She's pulling everything together because she's in the middle of being audited by the IRS. And the lady who's auditing them, this particular uh, agent, is, is kind of known for being very hard on these businesses, at least from the perspective of the community, that a lot of the immigrant businesses, of which their laundromat is one, uh, has seemed to be getting special scrutiny. And so they're trying to pull everything together. Evelyn's having a hard time doing this because at the same time, she's trying to kind of plan this big party. Waymond is trying to give her divorce papers that she is unaware of at this point in time. Uh, he's trying to do that sort of in between everything else, the madness is going on. And then her daughter is coming to the uh, the party that night, which is going to be an open party for everyone who sort of frequents the laundromat. They're putting it out to any to patrons that, that come there. And it's also going to be a bit of a family party, but supposed to honor the grandfather, who's played by James Hong, who is, who's kind of staying with them right now while they plan the party. Uh, she's just... Uh, and Evelyn's very nervous because her daughter Joy is has been trying to get the family to accept that she is dating Becky, her girlfriend, and she's afraid that their traditional, or, or let me say she's not afraid, she's more aware that their traditional uh, Chinese values may not quite match up with, uh, with her lifestyle. And so that's kind of where all this happens, and Evelyn is just caught in the middle of it. And Right up front, there's a playful sort of style to the film, I think, that lets us know that this is going to be comedy. You get a couple of uh, quick moments of, of levity, but you also get this kind of frazzled nature to the movie right off the bat where we see a lot of things, again, everything happening everywhere all at once. And it's But it's very intimate in the beginning. You get this portrait of a woman that is, she's caught in a perfect storm of things going on uh, personally, professionally, and all every element of of the life that she's she's been trying to build is at a crossroads of falling apart. This business she's been running with her husband is running up against the wall. The fact that she has that she left to come with her husband and start this business in the face of her father's scorn uh, is only you know uh, amplifying things. And then this this third layer where she is the immovable wall to her to her daughter. And so she's caught in crossfire. She's being pulled in a lot of directions. And then I think it's safe to say that in route to the IRS uh, office and to meet uh, Deirdre, who's played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and she's the she's the person they have to go before and give the receipts to, as they're in the elevator, something very strange happens. And we've had a few glimpses that something odd is going on, but we haven't had any moments where Evelyn herself realizes it. And suddenly she's confronted with the possibility that reality in a certain sense isn't exactly uh played by the same rules that she always thought it was now i know that's very vague it may even suggest the movie going in a direction it doesn't but i kind of want to stop there because i think the movie that unspools after that is so crazy is so ambitious that it's best for you just to to see it and i think this sets up the stakes pretty well what we've just described uh, trey is there anything you want to add to that plot synopsis no i think any further in and you're kind of getting into some 
getting some stuff spoiled for you. Yeah, so it's tier one. There's no spoilers here. I will mention before we talk about uh, anything a little bit more deeply, but I think this is a point where we can talk about, uh, we definitely have other performances. I think we could talk in general our feelings about the movie. I went in with pretty high expectations. I'm sure by the time, Trey, I talked you into it, you were the same. Uh, tell, tell me what you thought about it. Yeah, so... Nathan, and I'm going to be honest, and I want to say this because I feel like there's probably a lot of people that felt like I did. When you sent me that first trailer, I was like, ah, okay, this is another Nathan Bartlebaugh movie where he's trying to get me to... <laughs> um, So I was kind of, I'm going to be honest with you, I was kind of dismissive at first. Um, and then you... I got that vibe. <laughs> yeah. So then you started talking to me um, after you'd seen the movie. And the more you said, I was like, you know what? Nathan doesn't go on like this all the time for all these movies. Like there's got to be something special with this one. There's got to be some cool stuff. And I'll tell you, if you're hesitant, um, if you've seen the trailer, if you hear what we talk about and you're a little hesitant, maybe don't be, because I think this is one of those cases where this film could surprise you a lot. Um, I want to say that off the bat, just to kind of maybe throw away your inhibitions and go into this one with a, an open mind. I would say, is that fair, Nathan? I think so. I think, yeah, that's definitely fair. Yeah. Um, other than that, I mean, we're going to obviously get into how much we loved this movie and how much this movie is great. But on a cast level, I don't want to say too much. So please stop me, Nathan, if I'm going off into a direction. But like you said, um, this entire cast is fantastic. And Jamie Lee Curtis, it's funny. I think when I think of Jamie Lee Curtis, I think of this kind of dignified actor who, you know, has been around a while. This isn't going to be your typical Jamie Lee Curtis role. Um, I think she's great in this. I think everyone's great in this. Um, it's a relatively like small, close knit cast, but I feel like they all get their chance to go through their performances. And I mean, you get where Yo is coming from when you're comparing to her husband. You know, he's kind of this free spirit guy, this happy go lucky seeming person and she's kind of tense and on edge and kind of snaps at people but you kind of get where she's coming from and i just love how and you've said this to me nathan how everyone kind of gets their piece and gets their time yes and i don't think that's always true of of films where they show us people that we recognize and you see them in the cast and in this particular cast is often a cast that's relegated to the second tier, right? Mm -hmm. I think even even Yo is oftentimes playing opposite someone, or in more recent years, you know, she's the one that will show up in a Marvel movie for a couple of minutes, you know, whether it's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, which has a slightly larger role as Shang Chi. But a lot of these people, uh, Hong's an example. I mean, Hong's always a, a bit player, yeah, uh, and he's always been a bit player for the most part. Lo Pan may be one of the largest roles he's had. I say this is also just as large. Uh, and he really gets to do something here. I mean, you see here he's the grandfather. The first time you see him in this film, you kind of figure, oh, he's going to maybe like wander in and out and and, and have a couple of, of moments and that'll be it. But I think everyone here who's cast gets to do something. And it's it's without getting too much to be too spoilery, it extends to almost every person cast in this movie, which is, which is interesting because I don't think that's always the case. You know, a random customer... Uh, you see them in this film and you think, oh, hey, that person looks either familiar or unique. There's chances you're not, you're, this will not be the only time you see them. I think this is one of those few cases where this film utilizes almost every single person it cast down to the, you know, guard number two, down to laundromat patron with dog. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
that the you see these people, you can be assured, and, and things in this movie, there's a scene early on, I won't get to too much spoilers, when they sit down at the desk of Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, Deirdre, and they're trying to, they're frazzled, they're trying to pull all the papers together, they've got uh, Hong there in his wheelchair, and they're, she's trying to get her head together, she's just had this moment where everything's gotten a little crazy, and when Deirdre's introducing herself, my uh, my buddy who was with me, Renee over and goes, Nathan, on the back of her desk there, is that a, and I said, yeah, yeah, it is, <laughs> and that is probably one of the moments when you suddenly recognize things are going to be, are, are going to go a little out there. But I think this movie right from the beginning shows it has a big command of all of its pieces. And I was, I was excited initially, but I believe it, I will admit to, to you that at, at first the movie is kind of jerking around a lot of directions, like right off the bat. And I was like, is this going to be a little too, um, abrasive in the way is it going to feel choppy is it going to feel disconnected or mm-hmm. convoluted and in this first 10 minutes or so i was loving all the family dynamics i was loving that but as they get closer to getting to this irs office and as the sort of um the stress level there amps up and the film starts to introduce these kind of weird ideas i started to wonder if this was not going to be too har- too um too hectic too frenetic mm-hmm. and was going to get away from itself and that uh I think I can say this without spoiling any of the movie. That is not the case. Uh, for me, I was delighted where, where this movie goes. This movie does get crazy. Uh, it does go in some wild places. I'd say almost every five or ten, every five to ten minutes, the movie keeps reinventing itself in new ways. But it keeps at its heart. I think the one thing that can be said is this cast, this is a strange case where a... I'll talk about this more when we get this tier two. But I will say this. This movie has an amazing ability to feel both small and intimate and almost hermetically sealed in some ways and then big and vast and crazy and uh epic in scope Mm -hmm. but it has this cast that hangs together you get this family dynamic and this family dynamic pulls you through the entire film it's a weird thing to say but this movie would has the same heart center to it that say a pixar movie of this ilk that wants to be about family would have like uh the the good pixar movies you know and i think that i know is that wrong to say like it has a heart and a warmth to it but we're not talking cookie cutter that it somehow manages to keep these pieces pulled together usually big ambitious movies even the ones that i love often i think i've used the term probably in this very episode they have a tendency to fall flat on their face you know they get to the last third and they just can't cross the finish line Yep. I think this one crosses the finish line and then some, and it's carrying everybody on its back. <laughs> you yeah. know, everybody gets across together. Yeah, I won't get into the ending, of course, but the ending is phenomenal. And that's that always gets going to make or break a movie right. But like you said, the heart is definitely there. Um, I think, yeah, you've got comedy there. You've got heart there. Honestly, it reminded me a little bit in that sense. Nathan, I know this was something we had talked about when I was on for our top 10 of last year of something where writers of justice and i'm not saying these two films are similar in any way um and i do like this one a bit more than writers of justice but i'm just saying that tone where you've got the goofiness but then you've also got kind of the heartwarming moments as well um and you've got you really feel for people um another thing you said they do such a good job of having all these pieces and being able to control all of them. And, you know, they've got all these pieces on the board and you could very easily see them losing, you know, sight of something or losing track of something. I think they do a great job of keeping it cohesive and it just feels like a huge movie. How many times do we see these 
supposedly advertised as epic sci-fi films or anything like that, any kind of grand scale movies, and you feel like it's just rushed and everything's kind of thrown in. This one feels like a big movie without kind of forsaking any different individual piece of it. Does that make sense? It does, and I would agree with that, and I think that that's the thing. When we see, Sometimes you will get these movies that look big, there's big special effects, and the characters either get lost, or those special effects in the worlds they create are sort of like glanced upon, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, we see the surface level of them without really delving into them. And sometimes you'll get, even movies that I love, you know, you'll, you'll have movies where we kind of, we bounce off this idea and we move to the next idea and the next idea. And I love it when a movie can be that inventive and that generous in its ideas that it just keeps throwing one more thing and one more thing. But I like it when they build a cohesive world of, of being John Malkovich or even a fifth element kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see those movies, you kind of feel like you're watching something special. At least, you know, I did when I saw some of those movies. Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind pops to, to, in, into my head as another movie. Now, the thing I'm going to say about this movie, I'm going to, this is about where I'm going to pull up my, a recommendation before we move to tier two. Yeah. Uh, and this is going to be a big one, I guess. I think this movie is better than the three movies I just mentioned, which for me is big because I love and adore those three movies. But I think this one draws you into its characters more. I think it's wilder and crazier than the fifth element. If I'm being honest, I think that it's, it, it blends action. It blends comedy. It blends drama and it blends heart together in such a way and 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 and, and sci-fi smarts honestly mm-hmm. uh this movie gets very philosophical maybe more philosophical than i could probably mention maybe 10 other science fiction movies that deal with the same sort of philosophical conundrums this one does but this isn't going to feel heavy to you you're no. not going to sit there trying to work your way through it because it helps you feel your way through it and i think this is the thing this is a weird out there movie this is going to feel like the movie that's usually avant-garde art for most people but i think this is a maybe a hot take or will be a take. I think this movie finds a way to make it mainstream enough that your mainstream audience that's going to be bewildered can find their way to the end of the movie and feel good about it when it was over. I saw this movie, uh, the three, the two guys I saw the movie with, I mean, it's not a surprise that we loved it. Or the, the three other guys I saw this movie with, it's not a surprise that we loved it. We kind of went in prime to love it. But we walked out of it sort of like proclaiming it was a masterpiece. I, halfway through this movie, I thought to myself, I can see this being one of my all-time favorite movies. And I felt that same way, even more so after the movie ended. And it was refreshing to walk out of a movie that unique and that interesting and that daring to take chances and then see the audience come out of it and sort of be there with it and hear them talking excitedly in the in the lobby and feeling energized. And I very rarely walk out of movies feeling that way, even the ones that I really enjoy, you know, to feel energized, like, hey, I could walk right back in and start that start that over again. I mean, this is absolutely a 10 for me. This is right now. It's the best movie I've seen this year, personally speaking. And as I mentioned, I can see this being an all-time favorite. It's a movie that I wanted to tell people about the minute I finished watching it. I I laughed to the point that there almost had tears in my eyes. I had moments where I was moved that I actually did have tears in my eyes, and I was thrilled by almost the entire movie. Are there a few slow parts? There are, but even when this movie is working in a lower gear, you can see it winding itself up. To, to, to throw another pitch. So I would never say that it's so that it drags uh, in the sense that there's something on screen that you just don't care about. Yeah. It's got really good pace. Right. And yeah. um, yeah, I want to focus on a couple things first here um, as far as my recommendation and kind of back up what Nathan's saying is this thing is kind of unbelievably mainstream for what kind of for the ideas and things that are <laughs> things thrown that in the movie. Yeah. Um, I, and yeah, it does get philosophical, but this is almost, and I'm not saying the 
film's not smart or anything like that, but it's almost like philosophy 101, right? Um, The way it describes the philosophy in this movie to you is so digestible and so easy to take in. Um, Sort of like the first Matrix in the sense that you had these easily digestible philosophical ideas that were big, but then underneath. And I think the Matrix maybe even uh, where the Matrix receded and shied away at some point this movie maybe pushes forward i think that both of the films though they find a way to 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 sell you on the really big philosophical ideas and then push the more nuanced ones underneath of them yep and it's funny you say that because my uh, actually in my philosophy 101 my gen ed class the matrix was a huge talking point so i wonder <laughs> if one day we'll see everything everywhere all at once um move into that as well but um yeah i went to you know and you went to like the the opening night preview showing right 7 p.m yeah yeah i went to a 12 o'clock showing of this thing and middle of the day right middle of the day yeah 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 and there were a lot of people in there and i gotta tell you yeah maybe there were some reactions when the weird stuff started to kick off but it's not like anyone was like appalled by what was going on, on the screen. You know how that can be with a movie like this. Um, yeah. You get walkouts. Yeah. There weren't like people that. walking out. There weren't people being like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Whatever. There wasn't any of that in the theater. I don't know necessarily what the buzz was coming out, but I feel like there was a good reaction and a good crowd for this type of movie. So I'm very excited to see how this one lands. Um, for me, there are a couple little nitpicks I would call them. And we will get into that later. I believe, Um, but honestly, this is still, I very rarely give a film a perfect score on first watch. So maybe I'll watch this down the line right now. It is a 9.5 for me. So it is up there. It's just a couple little elements didn't maybe hit right with me. Um, but I urge anyone to get out there and see this while it's in the theater, please. Because honestly, coming in as a skeptic. I never would have thought I would have given this thing a 9.5 out of 10. It has room to maybe go up with rewatches. So yeah, that's where I'm seeing on this one, Nathan. Yeah. And it's funny because I think the fact that I've already given one other movie, the Batman a 10 this, this year, people are probably thinking, Oh, he just gives them out like candy, but I really don't. don't. (laughs) Uh, It's just that these two, I think, and you had mentioned you said when you you came out of the movie and you texted me and I you didn't actually say I, I'm sure that was intentional whether you liked it or not yeah it was said, <laughs> I feel like it has has a lot of this has a lot of I can see why this is one of your favorite all time movies it has a lot of Nathan Bartleball earmarks to it I think I think that's the case like with the Batman and with this film I sit there and thought man people made a movie like exactly for me like someone actually listened to, to what I or or in the case of everything uh, everywhere all at once somehow somehow somebody could just look into my heart and see what I wanted in a movie <laughs> and even the things. <laughs> I didn't know I wanted and maybe a couple that I didn't want, but you know what? It was, a, it was a, it was a group package. So I took a couple of them, uh, which we may talk about in a minute, but I think that um, the last thing I want to say is the movie is rated R and I think that it, uh, and it, and it's rated R mostly not for violence or anything like that, but for like, it, it, it has a ribald sense of humor. I think that would be fair to say mm-hmm. we were trying to do weird little comparisons and we're like, Oh, it's like, you know, it's like uh, Pixar meets the matrix meets uh you know, Charlie Kaufman meets uh, South Park. Yeah. And I think <laughs> when, like, when it comes to the comedy, you do, you get some stuff that's pretty, and I th- actually, that's one of the things I sort of appreciate about the film is it's able to have these sort of like um, almost crass level jokes next to such inventive ideas that you really realize that it is, I think, I think I said to you, Trey, that a good review of this movie is also the title of the film. It's everything, yeah. everywhere, all at once. Absolutely. 
So with that, I think we will move to, and we'll make this kind of short, but we're going to move to tier two here, which is talking about the fact, and even this, I don't want to get into too much, is that this movie deals with the multiverse, the concept of the multiverse, and multiple dimensions. So this is spoiler area two, and here's the deal. This movie deals with the concept that there are multiple versions of our universe. We're about to see that pop up in... Uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, obviously, but I think it's fair to say, Trey, that we've been seeing this multiverse idea percolate and develop for a few years now in films. And I think it's yeah. almost, it, it, it was very um, interesting when you were getting it early on, particularly in indie films like Coherence and things like mm, that. Oh, yeah. Plus yep. one, where you'd have doppelgangers and things like that. A movie like Primer, that's not necessarily dealing with multiverse, but this idea of there's very variations of, of people. Parallel. Um, Yes, parallel world. We've got a yeah. couple of those films this year, particularly in the independent field. Last year, uh, and and I guess it was really released this year. Mainstream was uh, or wide release. It was released this year. Was the uh, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes, a movie I reviewed the last time uh, on the last review episode. That kind of deals with this concept of multiverses that are based off of branching ideas and branching worlds. And and we used to get some of those things, a movie like Sliding Doors, that what if I went this way instead of that way? And what would what would, re, would result in, in those choices? But this movie plays with that on such a big level that it's not as concerned about that individual concept of, oh, what if I did this instead of that? It sort of just assumes that from the beginning. So it creates this universe where the multiverse is big and vast. And then it goes in an almost... I think if I'm thinking of a tone, it's almost similar to like a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or a Bill and Ted, like uh, uh, Save the World. Was that the name of the last movie that they did? Bill and Ted? Um, you know, I, I can't remember that, the name of it. Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted do something. Or, Face you know, the music. Face the music. That's it. Yeah. Bill and, let me back that up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> something similar to like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or Bill and Ted Face the Music where I, it's not the tone is different in some ways, but the, the building this wild fantasy world, would you say, I think it starts there and it goes way beyond anything like that. But I feel like that, that gave me a good idea of the tone where here's this movie that's going to do some silly, weird things right in front of you while it's doing two or three smart things like right behind you. And eventually those three smart things will, will revolve and be in front of you. And then the silly stuff will be behind you, but then it'll revolve again. Yeah. Um, Honestly, yeah, you're right. And I think you missed a couple of big touchstones on the mainstream stuff with that, with the, the Spider-Man movie we got with No Way Home. And then that's even, very true. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent point. Yes. Yeah, And then even before that, Into the Spider-Verse, which is an excellent yes. film. And I think that one is actually of the big mainstream we've seen so far. Probably did the most interesting stuff with it is Into the Spider-Verse um, up until this point. Yeah, I loved both movies. I think we talked about it in our best of the year. That we, I think I think was it number one for you. It was. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for No Way Home, which, and I love that movie. And I think maybe with, uh, but I Into the Spider Verse to me was a little bit the better movie, and yeah. I think also the more inventive movie. And yet, even the level of invention in that film still pales a little bit in comparison to the invention in this movie. That's what I was going to say. Um, I think that Into the Spider Verse has done it best so far, but it's. But No Way Home isn't really anything original, right? That's our standard yeah, yeah. parallel, you know, multiverse type thing. I mean, the DC comics have been doing that for years with their infinite Earths or whatever. Um, but when we talk about this one, I think there's so many. They could just easily, um, you know, do a standard by the numbers parallel universe. Instead, you know, they give it such they flesh it out so much and they flesh out the process of the infinite or the parallel universes, right? Um, in the multiverse, they flesh out the process. They flesh out like a backstory and you've got, I think it does a real 
good job. And I'm trying to dance around with spoilers here. So sorry if yeah. I'm being vague. But I think it does such a good job of building the rules of this world and how the characters need to interact with them. And at the same time, making those rules insane. So um, I think that's where this film excels. Is it has so many smart ideas and gives you the rules. You know the rules. They're set out before you. And you can just go from there. And I think what's smart about the multiverse idea is it it allows the movie to work on a philosophical level because you have right up this idea that we see Evelyn in her life and that she's not really like happy with it per se. She's just been sort of going through it, right? She makes a decision one day and the next day, and there's always a decision to be made and she's sort of pushing through in that way. And then at some point she's never really slowed down to look back at all those decisions she's made, whether for good or bad to really consider whether they were the right decision or the wrong decision or a decision that, Hey, I'm happy. I'm here despite the, the, the previous decisions. And she's never really slowed down for that at all. And so the movie kind of gets to play with this idea of what our life looks like as these decisions mount up, not in an idea that we can necessarily always move back, but what, what level does there's the level of the decision I make. So I have to make sure I make the right one. But then I think there's this further level of philosophy, philosophy, which deals with, how do I feel about the fact that I'm always making decisions and I can't always be 100% in control of every single one of them? You know, do I become despondent? Do I become nihilistic? Or do I? And, and, and what about different versions of nihilism? Right? Is there yeah. a, is there a certain Zen nihilism that I can adopt? <laughs> and the idea that this movie sort of keeps bringing these ideas in in a way that's almost 100% digestible. There, there's real, there's reality in the conversation she has with her daughter. Uh, and, and there's a real uncomfortableness in that. There's reality in the discussions that she has with the, even this IRS agent who is very much a hard tack, but isn't not a person. You know, right. She's still a human being. And the movie sort of un, un, unravels that a little bit by using the multiverse. So, of course, in multiverses, you always get the opposite, the the other versions of yourself, right? All the way back to Star Trek, where we got the evil Kirk, right? You know, yeah. we get the, or the, or the, or the villainous Spock, you know, we get these different versions of people. And this movie plays with that in an interesting way. I'll probably save that a little bit for tier three, but the other thing it does is it allows, I mentioned about it, the movie feeling big and then small sort of at the same time. This movie, by the time it ended, I realized that we had only, we only, the movie is really only set in a couple of locations, uh, it's just locations over various multiverses. So even though most of this movie takes place in an IRS office, right? Yeah. <laughs> that this movie feels vast and broad and, and, and more off the wall than you could possibly imagine. I don't know how I can emphasize that. Here's the thing. In Swiss Army Man, I always felt they would throw out a weird idea and they would just move on to the next one and the next one. And after all, it was a pile up of, of fart jokes and stuff like this. And I just didn't know, like okay, that's fine, but now all I have is a big pile of fart jokes at the end of the yeah. day. Right? Yeah, and the, This movie will give you a weird joke, and you'll be all the one like, where did that come from? Why did they go there? And then it will go there again. But it won't go back to this. It, it, when it goes back to the well, it goes a little bit deeper. So it will suddenly you'll take this thing you thought was a throwaway comment. There's a there's one scene where Evelyn is trying to explain what the process is like to her family. And all I will say is she starts to reference a piece of pop culture in a way that's completely wrong. And I thought, wow, that's a weird joke. Like, <laughs> but these characters just go with it and it happens. And I thought, that's very strange. Yeah. Uh, very original and very strange. And then I just thought that was it. And then that joke pops back up in one of the parallel <laughs> worlds in a way that I totally blindsided me. And I thought, wow, they just took it to another level. They paid that joke off. And then they take that joke and make it a subplot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. This happens about six different times. Yeah. There's things I see and I thought there's no reason for this to be there. And then five minutes later, I'm actually welling up in tears over this wild, weird, oddball side piece 
of this primary story because they're all tied together because that's the genius of the concept of the multiverses is at their heart they're all tied together and where this plot goes so the other thing i'll say here and i'm i'm going to say this for, for tier three so tier two is basically just letting you know this is a multiverse story it gets weird visually it's beautiful i heard like mm-hmm. seven people worked on only seven people were on the which is insane fx staff here yeah we're not talking these aren't big vistas and we're not seeing you know underwater cities or anything necessarily like you would see in this really expensive marvel movie but what you do get there's a lot of special effects they're handled very well and the martial arts sequences i think it's fair to say if you've seen the trailer there are some martial arts sequences which is in here and we get to see of course we see yo get in on them we get to see uh kwong get on them and he his scenes are really good and very dynamic and it's fun to see how <laughs> it's fun to see them used for the thing that they're known for here but it's also fun to see them used uh, as great characters right and as, as actors and even jamie lee curtis gets on in the fight scenes <laughs> yeah these aren't your uh, traditional fight scenes these aren't your traditional well, well yeah, I, th- I think to be fair though they have there are fight scenes in this that will be at home in the matrix oh yeah i'm but not then, saying yeah yeah go then there's a there, there'll be a <laughs> twist to them that yeah you would have never expected in 100 years you would see oh so yeah I the think, choreography and everything is good i'm not saying yeah, that i'm just yeah. saying they're not exactly what you're going to expect going in the, the, yeah they are to a point but then there's always that you wouldn't yeah you're some of these scenes are unconventional, yeah. but they're the but they give you the same sort of rush you would have if you were watching a normal sort of martial arts extravaganza. But then there's just so much more. I think that's the thing with the movie. There's just so much more in it. So I think with that, is there anything else you want to say before we move to the last tier on this one? Um, I w- <laughs> I was just going to say you had mentioned a pop culture reference, Nathan, and I think where I started really getting on board with the weirdness of this movie. And I don't know how many people would get this because it's a very specific reference. And I think those are littered throughout the movie, right? I think it's fair to say. Yes. But I think I told you there was a certain point early on in this movie where, you know, Quan's character looks at Yo's character and recites the chorus of this 90s song, which was, you know, it's fairly popular, but nothing you're going to know today. Just in spoken verse. And I'm like, what is going on in this movie? I kind of love it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's the thing that kind of catches you by surprise and it disarms you and uh and not like you know i think the thing is this re- we sang family and this isn't a family friendly not like that like you could have your like uh my um my uh, seven and eight year old had seen the trailers for this film and they wanted to see seven and nine year old had seen the trailers for something they wanted to see it but they uh it it was clear after I watched it. No, you guys have to wait a little while to watch this. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's fair to say, but I will also say this is that I think that it is, it is, does have a lot of heart. It is very charming. And I don't know if you felt this way. I, I never say this about movies, but here's the thing about movies is we, you and I love movies a lot, obviously, but we love them for a reason. I, you know, I sometimes I sit there and I go to movies and I go to movies. And when I was a critic, I do movies and I write them up and everything. And uh, suddenly you're, you're thinking like, why do I do this? And sometimes you'll get into a rut and you think why this is the, and then you'll see a movie and you'll say, this is the reason I watch movies. This is the reason I love movies. This is the reason I'll sit through 10 bad movies to see, I'll sit through 30, 40 bad movies to see a movie. I've said, I've, I've sat through hundreds of movies <laughs> of, of, of subpar movies to see a movie like this one. And I think this is a movie that kind of re-energizes you. It gets you excited about the movies. It did for me. It made me remember why I love movies. On the on the tier three, I think, so this will allow you to talk a little bit about some of the things, the nitpicks I think that you had and uh, to respond with them. I didn't necessarily have too many nitpicks. I do agree that there the, the movie does get wild. And so it doesn't really try to check itself very much. No. And I think at some point, uh, lots of times I think we see movies that feel kind of 
non the energy has been leached out of them because we've tried so hard studios have tried so hard to sort of pare them down and not allow them to be about this thing or about that thing and let's not mention this and let let mention that it feels like they were sort of just let go and uh and and to do whatever they wanted and to sort of indulge whatever they wanted to do and but with with enough command and with enough like assurity that you feel like you're going on a ride as opposed to you feeling you're being strung along for a ride so i'll say that that being said when you do that, you're definitely going to have pieces that aren't necessarily going to be for everybody. So I think that what we can say, um, the last, the only spoiler in this segment, so this is segment three, and the only spoiler I want to mention is that uh, when we talk about the multiverses, this isn't a movie where you jump through a portal, per se, and boom, you're in another universe. The concept here, and this, I'll just very uh, briefly touch on it, does have almost a feeling of the Matrix or something like that, or even a, a Eternal Sunshine, where... The concept is you aren't going to jump into another universe, but you're going to sort of, you can tap into the identity that lives in that other multiverse through some sort of weird action, some bizarre action. If you if you have the right technology uh, and you need this future technology that comes from one of the the multiverses that is sort of known as the alpha multiverse in this world, right? Would mm-hmm. that be safe to say that many of the characters who kind of come along, introduce themselves as the alpha version yes. of so-and-so. And so the first time that this happens, we mentioned that something weird happened in that elevator. That's when Daquan's husband, Wayman, he basically converts to a different like multiverse reality in the middle of that, in the middle of that elevator. I think that that's a safe thing to say. And that's what kind of sets this whole thing off, that he suddenly turns to Yo's Evelyn and tells her something that, uh, he need that he lets her know he needs to tell her she needs to be on watch and on guard that something bad is going to happen and at this this third level of spoilers i think it's safe to say that there is this dark force that is kind of spreading through the multiverse and is causing chaos and destruction and disruption and he also lets evelyn know that she has been targeted not just by this force because it seems that most of the the other Evelyns that no longer are alive in the multiverse, they all seem to have the same cause of death, murder. So uh, there's this idea that some force is sort of taking out the Evelyns in the multiverse, and that the same way that she's being targeted by that force, she's been targeted by the the inhabitants of the Alpha world, or the Alpha universe, because they see in her a potential to combat that evil. Now, that, now we've just probably said the first generic-sounding thing about this movie. Uh, by putting that up front, the idea that oh, it's going to be this this great battle, but I think and a battle potentially between the forces of good and the forces of evil, and it maybe it'll all come down to a fist fight. Now that sounds very boilerplate, but the genius of the film is it doesn't roll out that way. I think the the, the smart element of the movie is what that force turns out to be, who it turns out to be, and how it is ultimately overcome is what makes this one of the one of my all-time favorite movies. Like the originality that gets siphoned in through that boilerplate sort of, sort of whatever you want to call it, that like uh, epic storytelling device. I think it gets to be pretty original. The other aspect is w- the way they jump is that they they don't just jump through a portal. They are given this technology that allows their consciousness to jump into another version of themselves, and they have to follow this line right through the multiverse to get to this other. Uh, this other identity. And if they can do that, they can tap in, not unlike the Matrix, and sort of learn new abilities, and they can use the abilities that that other multiverse version 
has. But in order to do that, they have to sort of do something off the wall, like an off the wall <laughs> gesture or or action that's going to, if they have the software and they do the action, they'll trigger a direct pipeline to this other identity. And some of these actions are pretty off the wall. They can be as simple as telling a person you wouldn't normally say this to that you love them uh, with sincerity. Or it can be very, very, very weird. <laughs> and the movie never gets tired of surprising you with how weird that can get. Yes. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think, what you wanted to get into, Nathan, are kind of my nitpicks. And it's funny to call these nitpicks, Nathan, because, you know, if one of these moments showed up in Dune, I'd drop it like two points. <laughs> so, <the> movie... <laughs> so it's funny here, and I think that's a testament to the movie, is that, yes, you have to do something to essentially you know, veer off to where your life would lead you to get this ability from another universe. And I hope that's not too um, spoilery. But so, yeah, these things are often completely ridiculous. And this is where it gets into that South Park type territory of humor. And you know what? I'm not against absurdist humor. I like it a lot of the times. And I think it just flows in so nicely with the rest of the film and it's right along these serious moments that it doesn't take a lot off with me. But I'm going to tell you right now is if you're going into this, I think that's going to be the one thing that's going to give you pause is the tone. Um, I think the tone is a little weird. That might be the only thing that kind of keeps you from fully enjoying this film. I will say no matter how crazy this stuff got. And let me tell you, it gets crazy. Um, it never turned me off the film and made me think like, oh, what am I watching? Uh, I was right there with it. And I think that's a credit to the movie. So those are very small minor nitpicks. That's the reason why it is at a 9.5. Again, over time, maybe I'm... These are, you know, I become numb to these types of things and maybe I move it up. Um, but honestly, that's where the film gets a lot of its weirdness is the actions that you have to do to complete certain goals yeah for sure and i think in some of the multiverse worlds themselves of which there are oh, yeah. multitudes yeah. um and and now i think it's fair to say i think it's okay to say that you know you sharing the, some of those moments with me that they're that they are quick moments i think yeah to, to be fair to me did i love every one of them i don't i, I didn't necessarily and i think that in some of those moments are the moments that have actually prevented me from taking my kids to see it uh, but I don't think that they're going to necessarily turn many people off. I think the thing is the fact that this movie ends up being so mainstream, there are definitely going to be moments where they're going to be like, oh, wow, really? They, had, yeah. they put that in there? Um, there are other people that are going to be delighted by that because there is this feeling that anything can happen in this movie. And I think that that's, what it, that's why they worked for me. Was They had me so disarmed that at one moment in the movie, I actually thought that the movie had done something that was actually just sort of like clipped its wings. And I was like, oh, no, 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 you can't. No, no, don't do that. This is the, you, you genius. And then just as I thought it was slipping away, they, uh, they would bring it right back. And so the movie does have a little bit of fun with you, I think. Um, but the fact that it delivers the ultimate ride is why I'm, I'm super happy with it. But I think anybody who loves these movies that can, and few of them can, a lot of times the movie feels very heavy philosophically. I think the philosophical edges are all underneath. They allow you to think about what happened in the movie and then kind of how would you handle a situation like that? And it makes you think about your life. It makes you think about your family. It makes you think about decisions and choices we make, but not in a heavy way, I wouldn't say. Uh, but I love the other intelligent thing about this is I think they give this idea of if you're able to connect to the multiverses and have complete knowledge of all the multiverses, what does it mean? What kind of burden is it to know everything all at once? What kind of 
but but also what kind of freedom would it give you or, or what kind of you know i think we see movies so often and i've said this many times i probably even said this to you in some of the, the the few reviews that we've done together you know i get so tired of a fantasy sci-fi movie that gives people amazing brilliant powers and then re- says that they can only resolve it through a fist fight you know, <laughs> yeah. the only way, and this movie, just like I mentioned that the Batman did things that I always wanted to see them address in that storyline here, they finally address that. And I think a brilliant, brilliant sequence towards the end of the film where it shows us that, you know, sometimes the concept of, 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 uh, of pacifism or of nonviolence is just a matter of how creative can you be at what resources do you have at your disposal yeah <laughs> i'll just leave it at that one of the greatest scenes i think i've ever seen in a movie ever towards the end of this film where we see what's what's the what's the uh what's the other alternative to a fist fight yeah yeah that's not to say there's not a lot of fights in this movie because there are and they're awesome yeah and honestly nathan there and there's two quick things and i'm sorry i'm going on about this but um the one thing is, I think I don't. I don't think I got a chance to say this earlier, but I think you've touched on it. Is just how what you were mentioning earlier about that freedom or that you know controlling and things like that. You get to see how it affects different people in different ways, and you get to see their struggle through that. And that's awesome. And I say would say the other part is a lot of this stuff. Um, if in another movie, there's scenes here that would certainly be considered avant garde or something like that. But I think the absurdist humor that they kind of weave in with it keeps it from being that and it keeps you know i think those things can be alienating sometimes when you see something in your film and you're like i i just don't connect with this i don't know what's going on but i think their way of storytelling and their humor is a way to connect the audience with it and keep you invested no matter how weird things get and yeah it might be a little juvenile at points but there's nothing wrong with laughing at you know a juvenile joke here and there not when it's in a movie that's ultimately smart and as charming and as like big hearted as this one is. Yeah. Yep. And so I, I, I'll just reiterate again, for me, this is a 10. I do think it is a masterpiece. I think it's a movie that we do not get many movies like this. Uh, that being said, I've, we've, we've been in a pretty successful uh, season of films. I think where there are a lot of movies out there that I've absolutely loved. Uh, and uh, th- this is, this is one of them. And um, I I could be more excited that that's the case. Yep, absolutely. I'm right there with you. This is an incredible film. Get out there and go see it. So, Trey, thanks. I know we'll be hearing from you again in probably about 20 minutes. So, yeah, <laughs> it's no. uh, funny how funny how this works. It's like the multiverse itself, right? Yeah, exactly. There's, there's versions of me and you from two weeks ago. There's versions of me and Bill from last week, and others versions of us right now. And uh, with hope, with, 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 if all goes well, this will be released today. So this will be the, the the freshest review, and we won't have we won't have a you know like a review of the Northmen or something yeah. on the front of this. No, I, I was telling you that. I was like, you, you got to get that out before that, or else you're just going to do it every week. <laughs> right, exactly right. So thanks a lot for joining me. I appreciate it. That's a Phantom Galaxy signing out. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Mm-hmm.